We've got two firsts today. We've got a first narco journalist come over from Mexico. Also, first guest who's also been on the Joe Rogan podcast. And I will put the link to Johan Grillo's Joe Rogan podcast in the description box below this video if you want to click over and check that out. It's absolutely brilliant. It's one of my all-time favorites on Joe Rogan. That one on the cop that was um, out of, I think he was out of Baltimore. He's, yeah, he's yeah. Like, yeah he exposed, Michael, Michael was a really yeah, good one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Johan has written two books. I've read completely the first one about the Mexican cartels. Second book is Gangster Warlords, Drug Dollars, Killing Fields, and the New Politics of Latin America. Links to Johan's books are also in the description box below this video, available worldwide on Amazon, Kindle, audiobooks, paperbacks, you name it. So I think the second book, because I've already um, looked at a lot of the Mexican stuff myself, we could, we could get to that. But I think I'm more fascinated by the second book presently with you because I don't know who a lot of these people are, these four crime families. Mm. Um, MS-13 is perhaps the most famous one. Let's start out then with the MS-13 and, and what you've written about them. So, well, in my book, Gangster Warlords, I'm looking at the MS-13. I'm looking at these four different crime families and how they operate and comparing how they operate, comparing who they are. Uh, but with the MS-13, uh, generally, they're this, this gang which is really big in Central America. It's driving a lot of the violence and a lot of the refugees fleeing Central America. So people now arriving at the US border are fleeing violence of the MS-13 mm. and other gangs down there. But they actually began in Los Angeles in the early 1980s. And I also interviewed recently one of the people who was there at the very beginning of this gang, a, a guy who was you know, in the very early days. So now, one of the crazy things, now that this you know, international gang, they're in, I mean, they're in El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, in the United States, in places in Europe, they're in Rome, they're in Spain. Uh, they're involved in you know, a huge amount of murders, a lot of extortion. But funnily enough, at the very beginning, the very early days, and I was talking to this guy, Alex Sanchez, who was there pretty early on, there are a bunch of teenagers hanging around outside the 7-Eleven listening to Black Sabbath, <laughs> listening to heavy metal music. <laughs> so the very, very beginning back then. And it, you know, they, and it was, you know, a lot of the uh, Salvadoran teenagers, they went up there, they fled the Civil War in the 1980s in El Salvador. And they arrived at schools. Now, a lot of the Mexican-Americans um, would kind of laugh at their form of speaking Spanish. So they they first they would they would try and hide their form of speaking Spanish and try and pretend to be Mexican because that was the dominant Hispanic culture in Los Angeles, and then some of them eventually started coming out and speaking like Salvadoreños, speaking like Salvadoran people, and they formed this gang. Now I was, I was talking to Alex Sanchez about you know how this really came about. What were the you know the name like Mara Salvatrucha? They started off as Mara Salvatrucha Stoners. So they, said they, they had these stoner gangs. They had long hair. Um, so they were into Black Sabbath. Now they had this symbol, which is well known. This is these like Mara symbols. But it began because they would go to Black Sabbath concerts and do this. <laughs> so this gets back to you know Black Sabbath. I had no idea where that, that's where all that yeah, comes yeah, from. Yeah, yeah. It's this weird stuff because like wow. uh, 
the Black Sabbath vocalist at the time who was Italian-American mm. and apparently his Italian granny had done this symbol <laughs> to like ward off evil spirits. So There's kind of weird stories there how that came from. And I said, like, why did you use machetes? They're really well known for their machete violence, which has shocked a lot of people. And recently these machete killings in like places like Virginia, um, shocking people, upstate New York. Said, what? So, so why did you use machete? He said, he said, at the beginning, we were too broke to buy guns. Like, and machetes, you'd buy them in these Central American stores, shops in the, in, and people actually there in like Los Angeles, they would buy. They'd have machetes on sale, not because they were going to like, you know, cut, you know, cut crops. It's because as a kind of to reminisce about what, you know, back in El Salvador, you have machetes to cut fruit off the trees. In uh, in Los Angeles, you have it. So they'd get these things. And they said that it was just like scaring people. You'd run up like with a machete. He said like long hair looking at the time of like Friday the 13th coming out. Um, Iron Maiden kind of Eddie, like long hair guy like, ah, with a machete would like scare people off. Mm. And that was the kind of the, the origins of this gang, but then they they spread. So they became they became these deportations um, from really from the 1990s. They began to really kick off um, after the civil war ended, officially ended in El Salvador. For a long time, they wouldn't want to deport people into the middle of a civil war. When that ended, when you had a lot of things geared up, the three strikes and you're out. A lot of things you can deport somebody um, for committing crimes. They started deporting them back. So these guys would go back and to El Salvador where they'd left as children, often when they were, sometimes their parents would have taken them out when they were six, seven years old. Sometimes a bit later, they might have left when they were 13, 14 because they were being recruited into the military or into the guerrillas. So they went back and by that time they were like speaking Spanglish. You know, they were, you know, like very mixed cultures. Um, often they were, they were pumped up from being in prisons and like really kind of muscular. They were wearing baseball caps. Um, you know, with these kind of gang things. And people then, they arrived in this very shattered country from civil war. And, you know, I've talked to people there about when these guys came back and they were like, the young kids were like in awe of these guys. They were like, these guys are coming from America. It's like crazy. They said they had, people hadn't even seen baseball caps at the time. <laughs> it was like a really impoverished country, war struck country. Suddenly seeing like people with these kind of, you know, and and so very quickly they became had people following them, and then a lot of the people who had fought in the civil war, who were then uh, kind of demobilized, either guerrillas or military, looking for a new home because they you know they they kill people in the civil war, like what do you do after that? And so suddenly they saw the gangs as a new home, and recruited so many veterans in El Salvador joined this gang. And they grew into this gang which spread over the borders and started shaking down businesses and started really destabilizing these countries, now with other factors as well. Um, and you had the Barrio 18 gang, the, the 18th Street gang, which they were also people, members of that, deported to Central America. So they both grew together and, and fed off each other. So the 18th Barrio, that's a different gang from MS. Yes. So the, the 18th Street Gang were, uh, is a gang which has longer roots going right back to uh, a street, uh, a, 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 a break off from a gang going back to the like, 1920s in Los Angeles, some of the older gangs in the city, which, which allowed, which was Mexican-American, but allowed non-Mexican-Americans into the gang, uh, Filipino, uh, Indian, 
I talked to another guy who was a member of the 18th Street Gang from, from El Salvador, who was then deported and went back and then died uh, in, in bad circumstances. His, his name was Panza uh, Locker, Crazy Belly, the coolest guy. Um, and he told it was a very kind of mixed mixed gang. He had the same stories. There were kids from El Salvador going and joining this gang, but some of them joined the 18th Street, some of them joined the MS-13. And when they went back, first they weren't really sure how they would like, you know, oh, we're all kind of back here. But then the violence kicked off back in El Salvador. So then you had the the, the fighting there, the territory there, control of territory. And they fed off because they, as new recruits came into the gang, they want to start wanting to commit murders mm. to create, to have a standing within the gang. So you need an enemy. You know, if there's no one to kill, you know, you need someone because they're both killing each other. And one thing about both the MS-13 um, and Barrio 18 members in Central America. When I interview these guys, one thing that really stands out is they always know they have numbers very clearly of how many people they've murdered. So whereas some of the people I talk to in like Mexican cartels, I can say how many people have you murdered? And some of them generally don't know. They have generally lost count. These guys are very clear because committing murders for them is like a scorecard uh, is like a, a way of having standing within the organization. So they are they are very, very violent. If you look at the murder rates over the last 10, 15 years in these countries, they're off the chart. They're some of the worst in the world. El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, where the gang has, has spread. So you spoke to these guys then and interviewed them. What were some of the scariest stories they told you about their activity? So... Some of the ones more in Central America, uh, like in the United States, it, it's obviously a lot less murder they commit. I mean, they're still tough, you know, very hard people. But in, in Central America, where the, the, the murder is kind of off the scale. So one uh, young MS-13 guy, for example, and I, I talked to him in rehab. And his his nickname was Montana like Tony Montana, um, Scarface, you know, you know, which is a kind of, you know, and then has been kind of round a bit at all. He had, he had like scars in his face. But so his story, when when he was like thirteen, he started getting um, wanting to get the attention of the gang in his neighborhood of the MS thirteen because they're like the power in his neighborhood. Now he said he a lot of them are from very very poor deprived backgrounds, but actually he was saying well he wasn't totally you know within the neighborhood. His his parents had some money. They had some, you know, had a business within the neighborhood. Um, but he wanted to kind of attract the power, you know, because they're the power there. So first he committed a murder, like in a mugging, but he did it just to get their attention when he was like 14. And then... Did he describe the circumstances? Of that yeah, moment? of that he said it was. It was a. He went to commit, you know, to commit a mugging, and they and they, 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 they killed the guy. Shot them. Then this the second murder. Then he got a, a mission to commit murder from the local boss, and he said they went to he went to kill a drug dealer who wasn't paying. Um, his dues to the MS thirteen. So he was just selling drugs, and you know these kids. He was like an older guy in his 40s. And he was like, these kids are like, you know, pay us. And he was like, no. 
So they sent him to go and kill him. And he said he walked in to the place where the guy was selling drugs. And he said there was there was uh, you know families there. There were there was uh, you know children there, and a woman with children there, a whole bunch of people sitting around. The guy was like selling drugs. And he walked, a 14-year-old kid walked in there, pulled out, and he, he said five times, bang, 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 bang. Save one bullet. He was six bullets in the in the, in the chamber of his gun. And I was like, how do you feel? Like you're a 14-year-old kid, you're killing like a you know, middle-aged guy. And he's like, I felt great. I felt really powerful. Um, so it's that it's that kind of thing of 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 when you see, and 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 this was like the beginning. Now I went through each of his murders and I was going to like write every single one like documenting his, his, his murders there were there were like I think 30 what was on when I interviewed him I was going to interview everyone to be honest and this is tragic it got boring after a while repeating the stories because it becomes mundane it becomes after a while these same things these stories of murders now when you um I mean, tragically, I spent too much time doing this. I find it hard to even get moved by these, a lot of these people anymore. When the first time when I interviewed a 14-year-old who committed a double murder in Ciudad Juarez, this is going back 14 years ago. And the first time I, I interviewed a 14-year-old, and it, it, this was when the kid was still like 14 and he committed a double murder. I think when he was 13. And he had these crazy eyes. And it was like, and I, I remember fixing on his eyes and like this guy's got like kind of a thousand yard stare from like mm. Vietnam and he's 14 years old. And these kind of guys, he's like, he's like scaring me with his stare. And he was like, I killed these guys. And then I was like, move, what, you know, how come this is like a child who's committing this kind of murders? And now I almost feel it's like, okay, another one, another one, another one. It's almost you, you switch off to these, to these things. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's child, child soldiers, child committing, you know, children committing murder in a big way. And, and that's, that's the way it is. So what, how, how, how so many bodies are coming out of these these countries now. When you when I I've done a lot of interviews and been covering recently this stream of refugees or people fleeing this area to go to the United States, and this is a big hot political issue in the United States. You know, this is Donald Trump sending the military to the border. All of the crazy things that are happening. This is really powering it. But one of the things about the MS13 and other gangs in Central America is how predatory, how antisocial their crime is, how they do things like in the stories, very, very real stories there. Like it will be like, uh, you know, you know, obviously extortion, uh, you know, you've got to pay some money for your business, but it's like stories like um, there's a girl there and the MS-13 want that girl to be the girlfriend, to be available for sex for the gang. And and then she'll refuse. The mother will say no, and they'll kill her and the mother. Oh, um, this kind of stuff. And so when you, and, and, and I see when I just 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 oh. recently I was on a, a railway track in southern Mexico, um, interviewing a couple of girls there. You know these these stories are very very real. When people say like I'm fleeing violence, I'm fleeing for my life, these stories are very very real. Um, these countries have become destabilized. They, they, there is no protection from the government to, to this. So they're gonna, they're gonna wanna try and try their luck in US courts. Now the US is, is, is switching this all around now. It's very hard, making it harder to get asylum. This is, it's, it's, a very, it's a very kind of crazy situation. And in, in, in the US, I mean, there, it's not a, a simple thing from the US point of view and, and, and the demands back then of, 
you know, or now Mexico's clamping down, these people coming through Mexico, and you've had a large number. So it's it's a complicated situation. One of my cellmates was a coyote, and he brought people over the Arizona border. He told me some stories. But going back to the girls on the tracks, mm. what was their story? So, so this this was uh, just uh, right before uh, Donald Trump uh, did the the call to Mexico to say, unless Mexico stops the migrants coming through, I'm going to increase tariffs on Mexican goods. And Mexico actually backed down and, and followed Trump on that and started really hitting the migrants. So this couple of uh, of girls, uh, it was a similar st- story to what I said before. These 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 girls um, had had the threats from gang members in the neighborhood, uh, which was there was in they were from Honduras, I believe, and the threat was it you know you got to be available for sex, you know, for us. Um, you know, you've got to, you know, put out to us in this, you know, we run this neighborhood. And and they were like, you know, we're, we're, we're running, we're going. Uh, but, you know, they were both young, single mums, uh, these girls, and they were on the tracks there. They, they've probably been, I mean, they, they, they were, were, I was talking to them on the train tracks. There was, it was just actually, Trump made the, the call. It was just a kind of couple of days afterwards, the federal police started to really crack down. And I remember the tracks. There was they they were, they were trying to jump on the freight train. You know those freight trains that go through Mexico, and everyone jumps on the trains to go through. And and the federal police weren't letting them through. They're probably being rounded up and deported by now. You know who knows what happens to them. What's that journey like coming up from Honduras into Mexico? How, you know, long, how long does it take, and you know what's it involve? So they, um, you know, the time can vary a lot. Some of them can make it through very fast and, you know, get on buses or whatever, and make it through, you know, the, the, do the whole thing in a week and some can spend months being through. But basically from Honduras to the Mexican border, you can take regular buses and go through the country. And then when you get to Mexico, they cross, they often go over the river um, on tires, which is very easy. You pay about like, one pound in British currency is like 25 pesos Mexican money to, to get in a tire and just cross. It's the easiest border to cross or it was uh, into Mexico or you can go over land. Uh, and then through Mexico uh, for a while, they were often using the freight train, jumping on the freight train and going through sometimes buses that have got money, sometimes walking and, and, and avoiding police and patrols. And then it's getting to the US border where then you have coyotes like your cellmate you yeah. say he was a coyote. In, he was uh, Honduran as well. He was in Honduran. Yeah. And he was a, yeah. he was a coyote in uh, in, in Arizona. In Arizona, yeah. right? Yeah. On the so that so the in the big um, Sonora desert, bringing people across the Sonoran desert. Yeah, yeah. He t- he would tell me they'd have lockouts in the mountains and stuff with phones and and yeah, watching out for the uh, immigration people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've heard some people say some some pretty nasty things there. That like they're walking along, and they see like human legs in the desert and they're just like people die fast in that desert if yeah. they've not got enough water or, or protection yeah. yeah 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 and and I'm wandering around I think I mean I mean people I mean people who are lost and you know if they're abandoned and they're like wandering around the desert every now and then you see on the news uh, like a student from University of Arizona or one of the unis has took peyote yeah and they just walked off into the desert and that's it then they're dead yeah yeah, I mean, one thing, uh, have you ever done that that, that, that thing where you, uh, to like 
to show the need for compasses, you like uh, close your eyes and just try and head in a straight line. And you end up just walking around in circles. I think in the desert, people, if you're stuck there, because yeah. you, you think if I just walk straight, yeah. I'll get somewhere. But they just walk around in circles. Wow. Unless you've got a compass to like guide you in a certain direction. Uh, but yeah, but I mean, I mean, right now, so that's the second, I mean, that's traditionally been one of the big corridors into the United States. Now that's number two. The biggest is over the Rio Grande kind of estuary where it starts to open out through the Rio Grande Valley area. Uh, and that's kind of harder to protect, and that's the kind of easiest. That's the biggest numbers for crossing into the states right now. I saw a movie a while back. I think it was a Mexican movie, um, and it shows the gangs that prey on these people coming yeah. up in through Mexico. The gangs with the tattoos and all that stuff. This is Sin Nombre. I think I was the. Is that, that the movie? Yeah, Sin Nombre. Yeah, yes. that was, that was is that hit. real? Is that what's yeah, happening? Yeah, I mean, that was a great film. I think. Uh, I think that came out around two thousand seven. I remember. So I arrived in Mexico in 2000. And when the film came out and I was covering the drug violence in Mexico, and then the real violence, the you know, film took a while to come out, so it was the real violence that like, overtook what the film was portraying. As it became to be a lot worse what we was what I was seeing and covering in real life than what the film was showing. You know, it started becoming really like a war or like things that were more reminiscent of a war rather than what the film was shown. But it's a strong film. You know, it's, and it's, it's a film that's looked up to, I think, by a lot of people. It's a kind of great indie kind of movie that, and that director went on to to do some good stuff. You know, he did Beasts of No Nation as well, I think, the director. And, uh, so you show up at the scenes of these atrocities. Hmm. Worst thing you've ever seen at these scenes, like cartel killings and stuff like that is, is your specialty, isn't it? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, yeah, so so for a, lot of, for a long time, I did the the cop reporting, the, the the crime scene reporting. I've done a lot of that over the years. So the basic kind of way that works is, you know, you get like a shooting, you get a body which people are kidnapped and their bodies are dumped. Uh, you know, you get sometimes shootouts happening, but you turn up, normally you're turning up after the violence is finished. You're seeing the result and the way you're, you know, you're doing it. Well, for a long time, it was using scanners to listen to the police radio. Uh, as the internet came in, there was like things like Twitter, Twitter groups. Uh, sometimes it was phone calls from people saying, sometimes even you know dubious people like that, the gangsters themselves would make phone calls to journalists to say, oh, there's some bodies. You're going to find some bodies in this place because they want the publicity sometimes of these of these bodies being dumped. So when I first started going to these crime scenes and, and, and I arrived and, you know, I wasn't used to, you know, growing up here in the UK, I wasn't used to seeing dead bodies. I, I think I'd seen one dead body when I worked in the Royal Sussex Hospital in Brighton as a student and carried a body, you know, the guy, an old guy who died down into the, you know, in, in his bed and we carried him down. That's about as close as I got. So, you know, first it was, you know, a, a shocking just simply seeing the the basic, dead bodies there and just seeing bodies on the ground with a bunch of bullets in. Uh, again, it's sad. You get used to that. You know, you go and, you know, you arrive and then everyone's taking the photographs and you kind of go off and it's kind of sick in a way. You, you, go, you arrive at a crime scene, there's bodies that are all over, the, you know, someone's cut up and then you go off and have some food, you know, go off and have, you know, go off and buy a steak or something. It's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of weird, uh, weird thing. And, so first, yeah, it's like regular you know, body shot up, sometimes all ripped up, the bullets like tear their face up and stuff. 
And sometimes bodies mutilated. So, uh, you know, finger cut off, stuck in their mouth. Um, what would that mean? Like, is that that's for a, a snitch? A, a, yeah, snitch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a, that's a symbol of a snitch. Uh, sometimes, I mean, people with their, you know, private parts cut off. If it's like that could be to do, it might be a, a, an issue if it's a jealousy thing there, but some kind of a, uh, sometimes, you know, the head's cut off, uh, you know, he headless bodies or, or head's cut off. And then there started being a lot of big mass killings that were kind of rising up. So then there'd be like, you know, five bodies, 12 bodies, gunny scenes. And then in 2012, uh, there there was, I got a phone call in the morning in 2012. I was in Mexico City and the phone call, there'd been a really large number of bodies dumped uh, near Monterrey. So I flew up there. They've been taken off the street then. That, that was 49 bodies that had all been decapitated, all had their hands cut off and their feet cut off. I got there when they were in the morgue, uh, taken into the morgue. So they were taken off the street then. They were dumped on the street. And then it was more just the, the smell, the stench of, of that kind of human flesh that you start to recognize and, and you know, remember that, that smell. And that same smell when, when you know, I've also been a place where there's been mass graves and they're digging up the bodies and that same kind of stench of human flesh. Jesus. Oh, I have to pause the thing after hearing all yeah, that. Yeah. Before we go to the next international criminal faction that you've written about in your book, Dem, I've just got a personal question for you. I wrote yeah. about Escobar and I learned about when the... Colombian cocaine cartels were the dominant uh, forces. Mm. The mortality of narco journalists in Colombia mm. was not very good. The mortality. Yeah. He bombed the spectator's office, killed mm. Guillermo Kane, all that stuff. You're in Mexico. Mm. The Mexicans took over the from the mm. Colombians, basically. And um, this is like one of the more, perhaps the most dangerous country in the world to be a narco journalist. Mm. How do you deal with that psychologically? So, I mean, the first thing tragically is that the main targets have been the local journalists in the smaller towns and cities where the drug cartels are strongest. Uh, hasn't been the main targets a lot of foreign journalists or Mexican national journalists based in Mexico City or traveling around. So if you look at who, uh, I mean, there's been a lot of Mexican journalists killed, but if you look at who's being killed there, it is uh, overwhelmingly Mexican journalists and people who are living in these, in Ciudad Juarez, in Sinaloa, in Tamaulipas, in Veracruz, in Guerrero, in these places. Now, some of them have been my friends and people I've worked with, uh, Javi Valdez, who was shot dead on May 15th, uh, 2017, was you know, a friend, uh, an amazing journalist, somebody who I really respected. What, what had he written about? Was it something that triggered that? So his story with Javier, and the first time I met Javier was going back to 2008. Uh, and I met him uh, when I was up in Sinaloa, and somebody said, uh, oh, you know, I was asked for contacts. I said, oh, you know, you should meet Javier Valdez. He just gave me his number. So I phoned him up 
and he said, oh, yeah, sure, meet me in this cantina. And I arrived there, and he was uh, by himself uh, at a table with a bottle of whiskey and a glass, <laughs> just, just <laughs> drinking. So, so I sat down and started mm. talking to him. And yeah. and we just talked until, you know, I met him at maybe eight or nine. We just went on till two in the morning, got hammered, uh, just talking about all kinds of crazy stuff. And he, he'd been, he had a great style where he, he wrote about drug trafficking world. He wrote about all kinds of things, but he really mixed it with this. He had this kind of, uh, I mean, he was like a Hunter S. Thompson or a kind of Norman Mailer, uh, a Garcia Marcus. He really was a big literary talent. And he had this amazing style where he'd, he'd write about the, he, you know, he'd write using slang, using this kind of crazy Sinaloan slang. His, he had a column in the newspaper called Mala Yerba, which is like bad herb, like slang for marijuana. And he'd tell these kind of stories about, uh, you know, the, you know, often kind of crazy stories about narco parties, but you know, often these stories that he'd hear on the street uh, or people come to him saying, I've got a story for you. Can you? Uh, so then he, there was this big uh, turf war in Sinaloa after El Chapo was extradited to the United States. So he was extradited in January 2017, right after Trump got off to power. And there's a debate whether it was a gift to Trump or a gift to Obama to say, you know, thank you and we'll give it to you, not Trump. I think it was a gift to Trump by Mexico. So uh, so anyway, so the um, after El Chapo was extradited, uh, there was a fighting inside the cartel between uh, two main factions. But one was his sons, known as Los Chapitos, and one was his right-hand man, who was a, a police officer who'd been uh, actually guarding at the prison. And when El Chapo was in prison, he'd worked with him in the prison. And he'd... Uh, He'd work with him in the prison and became friends and then become a kind of right-hand man. So these two factions had a big big kind of battle. There was big shootouts happening right in the middle of, you know, on the outskirts of Culiacan and people were running and stuff. And the newspaper where uh, Javier Valdez worked got a phone call asking for Javier Valdez. And basically the licenciado, this guy, gave an interview to Javier Valdez through a Blackberry, I think it was. Uh, and then there's a, a, a bad, they were publishing the interview and they got, the paper got contacted by Los Chapo saying, don't publish the interview. And there was a, a lot of pressure there. They, they, they ended up publishing the interview. The people of the Los Chapitos like bought loads of the copies so they wouldn't go to the public. It was a kind of big back and forth there. So, and among among that and other kind of pressure there, Javier was killed. Still hasn't been really resolved exactly the motivation of what happened, but it was in the midst of this turf war. But anyway, just going back to what you said before about, I mean, you know, saying overwhelmingly it's been journalists like Javier, people in on the front lines who live there. I live in Mexico City. But at the same time, I don't for a second want to think I've got any kind of immunity to the violence. And I know very well that every time I'm in these places, you know, your flesh and your flesh and blood, and any of these people you're talking to, who have done multiple killings, could easily, you know, kill uh, you. Whatever your nationality is, they can easily kill you. There's bullets flying around sometimes. I'm always very, very aware of my 
you know, vulnerability. Yeah, and it is something, you know, that, you know, it's, you get weary dealing with, or I get weary dealing with, um, something which is pre the, the pressures there and always to think carefully about how you're going to deal with the situations and, and best protect yourself. Imagine you would stand out as the gringo with this unusual name as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are the things then that you just feel that if you did write about them, it would put your life on the line and you just, you draw a line somewhere? Sure, there's, 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 there's going back has been various times. And you know, one time somebody gave me a video of an execution. Well, it was actually a hit, like a, like a, it was a bunch of guys doing a, doing a hit. And I thought with the video, you could see their faces. So I didn't want to put that out. I was like, I saw it and it was like, no, you could see the guys. I thought, man, I could you see their faces. What if I put it out and then were arrested? Um, I'm not going to put this video out there. Um, things like that. There's photographs I've taken and people have threatened me over the photographs and I'm like, I'm not going to put it out there. Um, well, there's you're, you're a very brave person <laughs> for doing what you're doing, I <laughs> yeah, think. Thanks. Commendable. All right, let's let's go over to the next crime family that you wrote about in Gangster Warlords. Then, and I'd never even heard of these people, the Red Commando mm. in Brazil. Who are they? How did they get formed? What are they up to? So, uh, the Red Commando in Brazil, in in Portuguese, called Commando Vermelho. Uh, the so this this is one of the big gangs, the biggest drug trafficking organization in Rio de Janeiro. And they spread around Brazil. And obviously, Brazil is another big case of violence right now. You've got the president there, Bolsonaro. So, again, another, another big hotspot. The biggest, uh, one of the biggest cocaine consumer markets in the world, actually, is Brazil as well. Mm. After the United States, I mean, people in one of the, and maybe the biggest uh, place total for consumption of crack cocaine. Is it? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of uh, people using cocaine using crack uh, in Brazil. Is that because of the population size? The then? population's big and there's money. There is, you know, it is a big middle class as well. And and well, with crack, a lot of the poor people using crack as well. So with the, one of the interesting things about the Red Commando is that they have this weird kind of rhetoric, which is a bit political, like a bit like we're like rebels, we're guerrillas, you know, we're not just drug dealers. You know, we're against the government, you know, we're a, so I was kind of wondering how you know, how come that came about, and they're like super organised, uh, and and it's amazing. Uh, Brazil is one of the places they're most open. Like I went to this one favela in Brazil called Antares, and I went on there, and when they have these these spies everywhere, uh, you know, people you know across Latin America, you have spies who are going to watch you, who comes in, get on a radio, report, you know, whatever. In Brazil, they're just totally open. Just walk in there, sitting in a radio with a gun, just like <laughs> half asleep, like, yeah, you're coming. When you walk in openly, the guys are openly with, uh, like, they're selling drugs off tables, like right there, like off a table, you know, and you can buy, if you want to buy cocaine, crack, prices right there. You know, when we were first went in there, like, hey, you know, the, um, they, you know, and, the um, totally open, and I'm walking around. And this is first in the daytime in this in this favela, and the guy pulls up on a motorbike. One of them's got like a AR-15 with a grenade launcher on it. It's completely open. When we go, we went back in the uh, in the night, like the Friday night, this to a party there. We went in in the night, and 
out at dawn and stayed the whole night at a party there, which was like a big sound system. <laughs> Everyone, loads of people with guns, and they started dancing <laughs> with their guns. Like, and it was kind of a, and it was fun. The party is it's, it's the music they call um, funk, you know, like uh, like favela funk. They call it funk. It doesn't sound like funk. It sounds more like a weird kind of electro. Mm. The reason it's called funk music is that back in the seventies they started getting funk records from the United States. So they were called funk parties. But gradually the music like mutated and it was like, you know, own like it's got a hard electronic beats, kind of weird kind of rapping and singing. Like the sound of that. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of, and it, it reminded me a bit. I used to go to some like old school jungle yeah. parties in, in London back in the early nineties. It reminded me of some of these old like sound wise, it's like distorted speakers, kind of beats coming off these distorted speakers. Um but anyway, they, they, they kind of created it and everyone was like dancing to these songs. They had a song like Red Come Up. They, could have, they had some, um, uh, they, had, they had a type, like a subgenre of the funk called uh, Funk Prohibido. Well, have they pronounce it in Portuguese? My Portuguese is not great. Um, like prohibited funk, banned funk. And they uh, and they have songs directly in favor of the, of, the, of the drug trafficking organization, like the Red Commander. Now, the story of them and I went to find one of the founding members of this organization, a guy called The Teacher. How did you get access to him? I found him. He, he, he was, he'd been in prison most of his life. Um, he, he'd gone as a bank robber. Uh, I found an, uh, an older Brazilian journalist who had been during a dictatorship, a kind of, a kind of left-wing journalist during a dictatorship, and he, he knew the guy. He, he took me to, to meet him. He still had um, uh, one of those the things on his ankle, an ankle brace. Um, ankle bracelet. He still had that, even though he was in his 70s. And he'd been he'd been in prison most of his life. He's now like on the release with that. And we talked to him about when they were formed originally. And it went back to the 1970s when you had the military dictatorship in Brazil. And you had these like left-wing guerrillas at the time who were fighting the government. And they were like really political. And the government said, oh, let's, you know, let's put them in prison with the bank robbers and the ghetto criminals, and that will teach them a lesson. They're going to beat them and rape them and, like, you know, like demoralize them. But the opposite happened. The criminals started going, all right, these guys have got a good thing going, and started getting, like, organized, like, kind of, like they were a guerrilla group, and this kind of spread, and it became the Red Commando, this kind of idea of, like, then eventually uh, there, was a, there was like a uh, a, um, a, tr- a peace treaty in Brazil and the political prisons went out, but the ghetto criminals stayed with the same ideology. They even had like a manifesto at one point. It was kind of rules of being a good criminal, basically. Um, and, but this guy, um, William, the, the teacher, he would like have, you know, when, he, when I would talk to him, he had this very, in his idea of himself as kind of a social bandit. Um, you know, he'd, he'd read, I mean, he'd read a lot of books in jail, like a, I think you did yourself, yeah? <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, he Karl Marx and stuff like that. Uh, uh, he was, he was, he had like, we, he had like a lot of kind of more of these, these, these romantic ideas of Brazil, very particular to Brazil. Um, these kind of tales of that. Uh, and, but they, I mean, some of the stuff, you know, happening in uh, the prison violence there, obviously in Brazil is crazy. And, and they're very clearly, I mean, the prisons, the prisons there are segregated very clearly by group. I mean, you've got wings that are, uh, Red Commando, wings that they're controlled by their enemies. In Sao Paulo, you've got another group called the PCC, the first commander of the capital, inspired by the Red Commando. 
but they're like a really powerful group and they control the prisons, the favelas of Sao Paulo, like a really big area. And they shut the whole city down, uh, you know, for a while. They were like one time, they, and it was all a pressure kind of thing they were doing. So, so yeah, very, very powerful gangs behind a lot of this violence that have come from this. Now, in Brazil as well, I talked to one of the police officers who was fighting the, the gangs. And when I was talking to him, you know, I said, you know, have you been in many shootouts? And he said, oh, yeah, I've got a bullet embedded in the back of my head. And he said, like, I've been in maybe in, you know, in, in thousands of shootouts. Every, every time they go to favela, they go in there and they exchange fire. It's like constant, like, back and forth. Now, when, when I was there, I said, oh, he said, oh, yeah, the, the Navy SEALs, the U.S. Navy SEALs are down here. I said, oh, what, they're, they're training you? He said, no, they're opposite. They come here to learn from us because these Brazilian uh, elite police units have so much uh, experience in this close urban combat, really, really close, having these really close firefights with criminals that the Navy SEALs want to get that knowledge themselves when they're thinking about Fallujah and these kind of battles around the world. So with the Red Commando then, how is it structured now and what is their code of conduct? So you, you, you have to structure the level of the favela. So the favela is like, the favela is a ghetto, uh, but like you have a certain you know, area of a ghetto uh, and it might be a place with 30,000 people living there. And in one favela, you've got a, a leader, a boss of that favela. So he's the boss at the local level. And that comes similar to a lot of these uh, gangs. You know, in Mexico, you have the head of the plaza who's the head of a territory there for a cartel. In the gangs of El Salvador, you have the head of a clique who's the head of that territory. So they have the, the head of the favela. They have, again, this is very similar between different gangs around Latin America. So when you're comparing these things, you find the same features. You have people who are like the, the people who are watching. You have the soldiers, the armed wing. Uh, you have the people running the drug business. Now, it's, it's quite easy to see at a local level these structures. It's harder sometimes to understand how they really work at a like national level because they were doing, you know, they were involved in, in, in bringing drugs through that ended up in Europe. They're involved in bringing guns to the FARC rebels in Colombia in exchange for cocaine. You know, one thing that the some of these guys talked about was in the prisons is, is where the command would be because people arrested from these different battles always end up in these prisons and that's where they'd have command structures inside the prisons. But they were saying it was more about like it was like a group of the leaders. But rather than having an official leader, it was more about who had the most convincing arguments among these kind of the, the, this top level of the organization so there's a democracy amongst the shot callers yeah 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 i mean i think but i think that's the similar with the i mean the mexican mafia they have their own like i think it's like a you know made members i don't know if they have a single you know kind of various made members and they have i'm not sure you might you know more about how the that prison works. gangs they have their own um charters on Arizona Department of Corrections website, it's got like the charter for the Aryan Brotherhood, mm. the charter for the old Mexican mafia, the charter mm. for the new Mexican mafia, and then all the different rankings and how mm. you earn your tattoos and all that kind of stuff. Um, generally, the leaders of the prison gangs are in the super maximum security. Mm. 
the idea was put them all in there and they can't run this, but mm. they just send word out through trustees and other means mm. visitors. So each yard, someone holds the keys for each yard for the shot callers and the commands come down from the gang leaders and they do the enforcement at the yard mm. level. That's how it works. Mm. Yeah. Did you, um, there was a news story recently was it a Brazilian prison where about forty people died in a riot? Yeah, yeah, that that was um, that's correct. That was like a. What's happened now is these these commanders have spread, and that was, I believe, a local gang that had formed. Like these, the gang spread against a, an affiliate of the Red Commando in that state. And that was what the the fighting there was about. But so, like, so there was an affiliate of the Red Commando in that prison. Yeah, and who were they fighting? Like a local, a local commando that had formed, or a local gang that had formed, drug trafficking gang. So like the when they kind of because because they 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 were the first the Red Commando were the kind of first of these kind of commandos, and then they they spread around the like Brazil and somebody would get like transferred to different state, this kind of word of them spread around and people. But William was saying as well that they, they came in a way as an answer to the craziness inside the Brazilian prison system. Because, you know, it's a huge it's one of the very, very big prison system. You've got like um, you know, over half a million prisoners. A lot of very, very violent, crazy situations. They were saying like before the commandos, you could get killed over a scrap of bread. So they kind of created a bit of an order there in the prisons. And that's a lot of what they, how they kind of began so that they, they're both caught, they, they can both cause violence, but also limit the violence. And like in Sao Paulo, where they've got a monopoly in the prisons, in the favelas, violence has gone down. So, you know, there's kind of a weird thing, things there, but parts of Brazil, there's still like a lot of conflict between their affiliates or new affiliates and other people, uh, you know, fighting over territory. So for 40 something people to die in a prison, that's an extreme situation. Yeah. There are riots and the fights over drugs between drug gangs constantly. Why do you think it went to such an extreme in this situation? 40 something people dead. I mean, you've seen you've seen that. I mean, repeatedly around prisons in Latin America, though that that you know that those numbers um, of of that kind of thing, and, and this gets into that thing of prisons being very segregated among gangs, gangs becoming powers within the prisons, controlling areas, and then they kind of riot and break into the section of another gang and commit and they go in there to commit massacres. Now, one time I was in a prison in Honduras in San Pedro Sula. And I got into prison there with a with a, a journalist, a local journalist friend, a guy called Orlin Castro, who's a great guy. And we got in there, we arrived, we kind of and we talked our, our way to get in there really without a set permission. And the the perimeter of the prison was a bunch of military and police. Once we got in, it was under the control of the inmates. We were completely at their mercy. So we got in, it was a, quite a crowded prison. Now we were in a section which was, they were called, they were the, there was an MS-13 section, there was a 18, Barrio de there's a section we were in was, they were not one of those gangs, but they were part of a big structure of organized crime known there as Bandas, who were actually, you know, very big and responsible for a lot of murders. So we went in there and 
Olin, luckily, he knew these people. They respected him. He was a local cop reporter. They saw him on the TV, and he's just a very, very charismatic guy. So everyone was like, oh, Olin, Olin. So one of the first things I was like seeing were these crazy fighting dogs in the prison. I was like getting these like dogs, like trying to you know, grab the back of my leg. I was like, you know, and they got like these crazy fighting dogs, and they have like actually fights with the dogs in the prison. <laughs> then people's like girlfriends are in there, like wives and girlfriends, and they're like wearing like you know like scantily dressed like in the prison it's like you know, I'm in, in prison what they're like you know we've got some food they're like you know what do you want to what do you want to eat they're like you know we, we got went to the, the boss in the prison in this area where the, 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 the inmate and he said oh you know he ordered some food for us because they got to, to make it and there'd been there was a situation right then in the prison that the former there, there'd been a guy who was the head of that wing before and one of the crazy things he did, he did, there was somebody challenged him for his dominance of the wing. And he hacked the guy's head off and threw the head over the wall to where the guards were. That was his like way of like showing dominance in his prison wing. So then this guy who'd been the boss there had come out, he'd left prison and he'd been murdered by MS-13. And there were these weird murals of him in the prison. They were like, they were like you know, said, so oh, this guy was like an amazing guy. He was like, there was murals of him they were doing. But because there was this big tension with the MS-13, so when I was in there, it was like about to go off with the MS-13. So there was, where the MS-13 wing was, there was people crowding around, like loads of guys, like crowding around a door, waiting if they tried to storm the wing. And they had... Like some of these guys, I mean, they had oozes. And it was like, I was like, when I mean, it's like you're seeing right Uzi in a prison sitting there, like, you know, with with oozes there. And and they, and this is just like, you know, it's a completely bizarre, surreal environment. And I was, I was sitting there and I said to Arlene, I said, what's the best thing to do if if it kicks off? And he said, probably best to hide under a bed. <laughs> so, now it didn't kick off, but I was like, I was like, this, this is about to go. And, you know, about I think it was about ten days afterwards, it kicked off there. There was a big raid. The police went in there. A bunch of people got there was shootings, and they 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 raided through and took loads of guns and stuff out. Um, didn't take the dogs out. <laughs> then they left the dogs inside. Are you an adrenaline junkie, Johan? Uh did you know it was going to be like that when you went in? There was going to be a degree of risk. Well, obviously, yeah. When you go into these things, uh, I mean. I guess, yeah, I, I guess probably I like adrenaline from, do, you know, doing these things. The the weird thing is when you're around, the, a lot of these stories sound crazy when you're doing them. They just, it kind of sees a normality around it. Uh, like, I like, yeah, I mean, I like doing this reporting. I get weary about it as well. I think it is an important story to tell as well. I mean, I, and I think, you know, it it, it is... Um, there is a real interest in going there and finding these things. You know, I think this is for me, there's a lot of journalism today. I mean, a lot of people are fed up with journalists. You know, we have a bad name. Uh, a lot of uh, people are fed up with journalists talking about a lot of things that people don't see as being relevant to their lives. I think these things are real stories that can be relevant to people. So, um, so I think there's a good reason behind it, but yeah, I mean, yeah, sure. I guess there, there, there is that with, um, with doing reporting in kind of conflict situations. Yeah. I can't lie. There's obviously a, an attraction to that as well. Uh, so some days I'd, I'd prefer not to be doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do some yoga instead. Yeah, yeah. Down. <laughs> so next, 
international criminal organization then in your book gangster warlords again i mean you're just blowing me away with all these facts that you're giving us here and the people that you've met it's just um mind-boggling but here's another one that i'd never heard of the shower posse mm. in jamaica yeah what's the deal with them so the shower posse i mean so the, the, the situation in jamaica which is obviously real really relevant to here in the uk uh, with a big Jamaican population. And, and uh, for me, it was interesting covering Mexico and covering the violence there. And then these things were kicking off in Jamaica. So I remember in 2010, when I was covering the crazy violence in Mexico, in Jamaica, there was this crazy situation where this guy known as the president, Dudas Coke, and his, his nickname was the president, um, was barricaded in this ghetto area, Tivoli Gardens. The military going in there eventually they stormed it and carried out this horrific massacre in, in the place uh but before he was holding it out uh barricaded up with you know a bunch of guys with guns barricaded up defending this ghetto area so i went to jamaica to try and find out more about this and, and also kind of relate that to how that compared to mexico central america south america and with uh you know a lot of it's very similar to the stuff you see in in you know in central america and mexico uh one of the differences is this has roots going back to the political wars in jamaica of the 1970s so in the 70s you had the left wing against the right wing uh you know two political parties fighting in jamaica and these political parties uh recruited people in the ghetto to create these garrison communities where you know nobody if you were from a different political party you could not come in there to canvas votes for to 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 try and get votes they would barricade these communities and these local hard men of the communities were recruited and created these street gangs uh, which began to call themselves posses and the leaders began to call themselves dons now Dada's coke whose nickname was the president, the interesting thing is in Jamaica, there isn't officially a president. There's a prime minister. And a head of state is Queen Elizabeth II of England. So for him to be calling himself the president, he was like above the prime minister. So he became a political figure on the island. You know, he's coming out of this system of politicized gangs. Now, they... Their drug trafficking uh, grew in the United States, uh, especially some in England, but more in the United States, with the Jamaican communities in New York, but then spreading right across the US. And in the 80s, they started leaving a lot of bodies around the United States. Now, the US uh, FBI and stuff first didn't really see this. They thought organized crime was like the mafia, Cosa Nostra. They, they didn't think... Jamaicans, you know, was the organized crime. Then they started realizing this is serious organized crime. Then they started adding up and said there's more, been more than a thousand murders across the United States attributed to these posses. So they started building up cases and deporting a lot of Jamaicans linked to these, the, the, the posses there, you know, back to Jamaica. But like the case of Dudas Coke, they still carried on with the, the drug trafficking, marijuana, cocaine, also with the political rackets. Uh, of controlling the neighborhoods and really you know like you know it was quite incredible they you know his power he uh had his own prison 
in, in the neighborhood. Yeah, they had, they had a couple, they had one like minor crimes, like if like say some, you know, it could be somebody who was just called being a nuisance neighbor. They put me like in like chicken, like chicken wire, like sticking there. They had a prison for like more like major crimes. And uh, a lot of this was recounted actually in court in New York eventually by uh, a witness, a star witness in the case uh, known as Cowboy, who I talked to recently, who was actually after being the star witness against Dardis Coke, he was going through facing deportation proceedings from the US to Jamaica. So obviously this guy is going to, you know, really, really his life is on edge there. So kind of after the US recruited him as a star witness. And he, a lot of these details really came of describing and, and, and he had got a good way of describing this. And I talked to him again. He's a, a good mind for describing how this organization worked. Uh, and he, you know, he was somebody quite deep inside the organization. Um, but I talked to other people in, in Tivoli Gardens and, 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 and went there and you see the kind of power in the neighborhoods uh, and the way it controls these places, but also the way people there look up to these figures. And, and, and in Tivoli Gardens, one thing that got you know struck me was that you see there've been massacres by police there. And there were the names on the walls of people who'd been killed by the police in these massacres. And these could include old people, but also include like, you know, young kids, all kinds of people. And then there were these big murals of the drug traffickers and the hitmen, there's big murals of them. So people grow up to see the kind of heroes and the villains, the police being the villains and these drug traffickers being the heroes. And uh, Dudders Coke also put on these major parties. Uh, he had these, you know, he had these, these like weekly parties and also had these big parties, uh, one in, in the summer, one in Christmas, where he'd, he'd invite big artists. So there's a lot of uh, big reggae and dancehall artists with songs, uh, you know, to him and, 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 you know, Vibes Cartel, somebody who's apparently linked to him. I tried to go into the prison to interview Vibes Cartel. I couldn't uh, get in there. But Bunny Whaler also had a song about him, uh, which I quote. Now, when I, I asked it, I asked Bunny Whaler's people, his song's called Don't Touch the President. <laughs> um, and I asked it to quote the song and he said, Okay, you can quote a song, but just be clear, I don't know personally Dallas Coke. I'm, I'm not a friend of his. That's what which I which I which I put, you know, in, in that with with a quote there. Uh of Bunny Whaler. But some other artists as well have uh, have, you know, songs uh, venerating uh Dallas Coke and he was, so he's a major figure. Now he was eventually after the massacre, he was uh arrested and deported to the United States. Uh, for a long time, the government refused to to arrest him, and the government was really brought down over this um, because, you know, say he was stronger than the prime minister, and the prime minister refused to kind of to to, to go against him. Uh, so you see, a kind of real like in a lot of you know what I'm looking at in in this book is how these gangs, you know, this is not just cops and robbers; this is gangs influencing politics. This is you know gangs controlling communities. This is a lot of what we need to deal with when we look at culture around the world today is to do with crime we're going to get to that in a big way when we get to the mexican cartels mm. so you know growing up i was familiar with the um the yardies mm. would the yardies be foot soldiers for the shower posse mm. or are they different cliques so the 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 term yardie was a broader term 
I understand, a broader term of the Jamaicans from the posses who went abroad, more like the Yardis. The like so so the when the Shah Posse went to like interviewed one did a, a long profile on one guy who'd been to New York. I met guys there who'd been in in the UK, including being in Manchester uh, and these places. You know, one guy I talked to he said like he said he'd been in in like Moss Side. You know, he knew these places, um, and he was talking about those. But like it was more the United States where they had stronger operations. It's harder to trace a lot of the yarders in the UK directly to the posse in Jamaica. Now, there is some links, but it's harder to make those links where in the US they had very, very clear operations running in like New York, Atlanta, you know, right across the United States. And this one guy I interviewed went over to the US, you know, way back in the early 1980s. And this guy, he'd fought as a trigger man in these political turf wars in Kingston when the political fighting was happening. So he'd had been having these gunfights and then he went over to to New York on a false green card. Said his his face is false no a false 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 visa or you know some false ID. Uh, he went over to to New York and did he arrived there. Uh when he arrived there there, there was a big uh beef between the the posse there and Jamaican uh their affiliated and the Latin kings. And it's in New York. So he just literally got off the plane and they were talking about this, this, you know, this problem they were having. And he said, I'll go, I'll go. You know, they don't know me, I'll go, I'll go. And he was so pumped up from being in these turf wars in Jamaica where you just you know, shoot people um, very easily that he went up to this street in, it was like a high, high number. I think it was, it was like uh, going to the Bronx area. Went up there where these Latin kings were. And he said, he went up there and like shot, shot two of them dead right away. Wow. And he just didn't hesitate because he was just so keyed up to it. And that, that's how they, when they first went to the like, United States, they were like on a different level, you know, than, than these gangs were dealing with. But they said so the, the, you know, US authorities eventually clamped down very hard on them. Now they, they did more, um, they did a lot of uh, stealing drugs from Colombians stealing drugs from other people. They did a lot of taking some corners. So they didn't really start to dominate the business in the same way the Mexican cartels did of really dominating the the high levels of the drug distribution. Wasn't there a scene in Narcos where, was it Chepe? Hmm. They took over his corner or something and Chepe yeah. flies out from the Cali cartel. Yeah. And he takes some of those guys out. He's in the barber shop or something, yeah, yeah, like yeah, Godfather yeah, style. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, is there a religious influence on the shower posse? So some of them can talk in like certain terms, uh, uh, like there was people saying, um, I mean, some of the interviews, I mean, there, there, there were some of the, the things that were like, uh, you know, don't take, uh, Dallas, uh, a guy was saying, like, you, you take him as like taking God from heaven, and this kind of rhetoric people would use. Uh, some of the people in Tivoli, I think, would have. I mean, this one guy, for example, I was talking to, we're talking as a religious term, but he was saying that when he was growing up, Dada's Coke was the one who was there, the shower posse were the one who were there, 
who were giving them food, who were giving them school books. They had a thing like back to school when kids would go back to school um, for a new term. They would line up there in the ghetto area and hand out school books. So they're giving them, you know, these things. So when you see that, you know, these people are giving them something and the government's giving them nothing, that's when they have that kind of uh, veneration. But, I mean, yeah, that kind of Robin Hood idea um, that was definitely there among some of the hardcore. A lot of people, like, you know, obviously a lot of people don't see that and and, and see that, you know, these uh, the dons are like destabilizing society or like really, you know, really bad, that influence of the way it kind of corrupts the country and corrupts politics. Yeah, you had all the displaced people in Colombia mm. left to die at the, you know, the scavenging to try and survive mm. at the dumps. And Escobar went in and built homes for them, didn't mm. he? So they were a lot of those are the people who showed up at his funeral. Um, we're going on to the final international criminal organization then from gangster warlords. Oh, this this will lead us nicely then over into into Mexico. Mm. So you've written about the Knights Templar. Mm. How did they originate? The Knights Templar are a, a crazy a criminal organization that, uh, you know, were, were, were trafficking crystal meth in a massive way to the United States. One of, one of the interesting things about them is their leader, Nassario Moreno, uh, talking about religious aspects, he had a, a really big religious fascination and he, uh, you know, had a crazy story of growing up in poverty in Mexico, in Michoacan, Mexico. And he wrote a lot of this story down in, the, in, a, in a memoir he wrote. He actually wrote his own kind of story, his own vision of it. He was like drinking river water when he was a kid. He was like that poor. He said he, said he thought people were rich if they were drinking Coca-Cola. Uh, yeah. uh, and he became fascinated by comics um, by this this one comic hero in Mexico called Caliman, who's this kind of weird superhero with kind of mind, you know psychic powers. So he wanted to develop psychic powers himself. But he had this you know crazy train wreck youth, and you know went up to the United States, started selling drugs, started moving drugs back and forth. You know, shot people, was in prison, and so forth. Was drinking, taking drugs, and then. Probably when he's in prison in the United States, Texas, he had this weird evangelical awakening. He converted to evangelical Christianity. Uh, and he followed this weird version of evangelical Christianity. And you know, he wrote his own Bible. And when he was building his big empire of taking meth to the United States, particularly when the United States banned the or made it harder for the precursor ingredients to make crystal meth from 2005 the combat methamphetamine act in 2005 like it was a big opening in mexico and he was really you know building up there but when he was creating this cartel he had these weird religious ideas so he did one of the big mass beheadings first of all he chopped off five heads threw them onto it or his his you know cartel did threw them onto a dance floor in a city called Uruapan. And there was a note there saying, you know, this is holy justice. And then, you know, he had this weird thing. Then he, uh, he people, he'd make his followers study his writing and do these courses where they would sit there 
and study his writing. And then he would come all dressed in white and it's kind of really crazy, like kind of God complex. And then in 2010, he was allegedly killed in this big shootout with the federal police. So it was all reported on the news, this guy's being killed. And then after they started venerating him as like a god with these big statues of him, crazy statues, Santo Nazario, like the Saint Nazario. And so they had these big statues like venerating the guy. And then the, it turned out he hadn't really been killed. <laughs> He and like you know, I was uh, like uh, reporting, and I told these people saying, "Oh yeah, he's not really dead. This guy's still alive." And and I thought, are they just making this shit up? Is he really still alive? And they're just making this up. But actually, it turned out he was really alive, and he was walking around. So some people say, "Oh, he's he's a ghost. He's come back as a ghost." It's <laughs> <laughs> a kind of crazy story, but he had a major cartel. I mean, he became. A real power. He took on. I mean, they, they killed loads of federal police. They they became a real power, and he took over all these kind of crazy things. And eventually, he was genuinely killed and beaten to death. I went to his wake as well, just after he'd been killed. His wake was there, and it had, his nickname was the maddest one, El Mas Loco. So I went there, and they had all these people dressed in white, and the kind of army were there watching it. And the guy just said to us, "I know you got you got to go." You can't hang around here. We kind of tried to look around. And he said, "Look, I'm serious. She's got to get out of here uh, right now." <laughs> so, so eventually, we we left, and they took the the the, the body somewhere into the mountains uh, near to his village uh, and buried him. We think, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or well, he's still alive out there. Yeah, that's like the Book of Mormon meets yeah, yeah. Scientology. Yeah, meets the Mexican cartel. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a crazy, that's a whole new level it, of madness. It's a crazy, crazy story. I mean, this guy, and, and the more you dig into it, it just gets madder and madder. The story of Nacerio Moreno, and then and uh, he was really brought down by the outer defensa movement, the, the militias, the self defense militias were the ones which really brought him down, not the Mexican government. And that a lot of that's shown in the in their documentary Cartel Land. Yeah, I've watched which, that. Yeah, that and that shows a lot of the fighting against his cartel. Wow. All right, so this brings us nicely then over to the Mexican cartels. A lot of my followers have watched Narcos. Mm. Um, we've got the Mexican Narcos, the recent one. Yeah. The thing I liked about that, even though it's all a DEA fairy tale mostly, yeah. Um, in the Colombian ones, they didn't show the symbiotic relationship with the police and the politicians, yeah. which has always fascinated me. But it showed more of the corruption in the, in the Mexican one. And the Mexican narcos, for people who haven't watched it, the main story is about the original cartel. There was one cartel in the beginning, the Guadalajara cartel. And that was run by El Padrino. And it all went bad after there was a huge raid on this multi-billion dollar weed plantation. And also they lost some Coke shipments. And a guy had, had worked his way into the cartel who was actually an undercover agent for the DEA, and that was Kiki Camarena. And what happens to him is absolutely horrific. So I'd like to just go over this whole story and ask you from your perspective on mm. it. Um, and for people, assuming people haven't seen any of this and don't know who any of these characters are, set the table by asking you about the individual characters first. Mm. So who is El Padrino, the godfather? 
who he's still alive, yeah. Yeah, Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo. Yeah. So I mean, you got it. Got the the so the, the weird thing about this this story, I guess, is that you know, particularly with the story of the Mexican drug cartels, you know, you have this weird interaction between kind of fiction and reality. Being that some of the real, you know, you have these stories that are told in like Narcos TV series and other um, Latin American um, narco novelas that are there. And people see those and that kind of becomes the story. Then the real people in real life sometimes copy and echo what's in the fiction then the fiction's copying and the, and, it, and often the reality is so weird anyway there's sometimes you know the kind of weird differentiation so kind of narcos you know we're talking about it now using that as a base you know a kind of dramatized version as a base of reality so that kind of adds to the myths or whatever <laughs> so you get that but i would say to, to take the mexican drug trafficking go back a little bit uh all the way well I trace this in, in my book, El Narco, all the way back to the early 20th century when you know the United States first started restricting opium and cocaine within the Harrison's Narcotics Tax Act. And they started making it more difficult to get opium legally in the United States. So you had a population then of Chinese Mexicans particularly around Sinaloa area in Mexico, they'd come to build railways and work in mines and were growing opium. And they started bringing opium from there over to Chinese Americans. And that was the beginning of the Mexican to US drug trade. And they learned about the opium from the British yeah, forcing well, it on yeah, the Chinese. Exactly. Queen yeah. Victoria was the biggest drug kingpin in the world yeah, at that yeah, point, exactly, wasn't she? Exactly, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> funny irony there. Yeah, obviously it was us... Uh, and the opium wars who who, who forced the uh, them to keep you know buying uh, Indian opium taken to China, but they they then brought it to Mexico, and that was the beginning of this of this trade. Now the Mexican uh, criminals, bandits expropriated this from the from the Chinese, took it off their hands because they started seeing money was being made there, so started taking over this business. And there was actually a lot of violence against Chinese Mexicans going back to nine. 20s, 1930s. And in this wave, they took over this, this, this drug trade. And you had this, this growing up. The big early days, it was quite a small business. You know, it was a bit like we might think about contraband cigarettes or something, it's like little side things that people are making a bit of money. But gradually it got bigger and bigger when you started having Americans taking way more drugs from the 1960s onwards. So like a sudden explosion of Americans smoking loads of marijuana, they go to the border, you know, and where do we get it? Let's go to Mexico to get it. Go to the border, buy it in Mexico. Then you have the cocaine, then the moving of the cocaine from the Colombia to Florida route to Mexico. And this is where you start to get El Padrino coming in. Now, really, a character, what's not really shown in the Narcos series is that that link was made well, there was a couple of things before, but one of the person who, when you talk to people involved in the business, who they really credit making that was the Colombian Rodriguez Gacha, Gonzalo Rodriguez Gacha, known in Colombia as El Mexicano, the Mexican, you know, he's a Colombian, because he made his things probably in the late 70s, 
went there and started making this deal with the Mexicans to take cocaine to the United States. So the way this is, is like from Colombia, you can fly to Florida and it's like a 900-mile flight right across to Miami to Florida. Now, the U.S. started to crack down this route from the early 1980s. So the Colombians look more to this Mexican link where you have a 2,000-mile land border and you can take drugs into the United States. And at the beginning, it was often paying them in cocaine. So the idea, you know, you could say like for the Colombians, it cost $2,000 for a kilo of cocaine. But they can sell it in the U.S. border at $30,000 for a kilo. So you can pay a percentage of the Mexicans to take the product to the United States. So you had the figure of uh, El Mexicano, uh, Rodriguez Gacha, and then the figure comes in of Miguel Fili Angel Feliz Gallado emerging out of Sinaloa. So Sinaloa is the place in Mexico which is the cradle of drug trafficking, a bit like Sicily is to the Italian mafia. And out of there, you get these Sinaloan kingpins arising. Now, Feliz Gallardo uh, was at some point a, he started it a business. He did some, I mean, quite an, uh, uh, like kind of business high school, did some studies there. And then so he had obviously a business mind, an economics mind. And he uh, was a police officer for a little while. And one was a bodyguard, as a police officer assigned as a bodyguard to some political family. And then emerged in the drug trade when the Mexican military hit really hard the business in Sinaloa and the people moved to Guadalajara, kind of moved from Sinaloa where a lot of heat was on to the city of Guadalajara and they set up these operations. And he, I mean, there's, there's debate really about whether he was a clear leader or it was more of a collection of these various drug traffickers. Him, uh, there was this guy, Caro Quintero, and this guy, Ernesto Fonseca, with this kind of trio of people who who, who created this, you know, first cartel in Mexico. That was Don Neto. Yeah. So that was the second, my second question, actually. I knew a guy who flew loads mm. for these guys, and mm. he said Caro Quintero, when he got on the coke, he, he became psychopathic and started mm. killing American citizens. Mm. Can you explain to us who is Caro Quintero? So Caro Quintero was... You know, of this this trio, whereas Phyllis Gallardo had a bit of an image of being quite a cultured guy. Of, he, he bought a lot of pieces of art with his money. He um, had the kind of idea of, you know, had, had this kind of education and um, this kind of business ideas about the, the organization. And Carol Cantero was this kind of flamboyant cowboy. Uh, he, uh, I mean, he gave interviews from prison in his interviews, he's kind of, um, this in the 80s, back in the 80s, you can see videos of him giving these real interviews when the, the press came in and he was talking to all the journalists and he was like, yeah, like he's been very charismatic, like life's treated me well, um, you know, very ostentatious. There's stories like your your, your friend was saying or like your, the guy you knew was saying, uh, stories of him getting, you know, taking a lot of cocaine, getting really nuts. There's a story about these Americans American, which is shown in the, in the in the narco series, these Americans who were murdered in the restaurant by Caracantero and the other guys. 
They were Jehovah's Witnesses, were they? they some, were. Someone was an author, wasn't he? And yeah, was a Jehovah's they, Witness. Some, some, yeah, some kind of uh, like uh, writer. Yeah, some kind of writer. I mean, it's like it's in the series. It has him like you know taking notes and stuff. Um, I think just wrong place at the wrong time. And and this that happens to this day. I mean, there was a guy recently in America when it's been various Americans killed wrong place at wrong time uh, and accused of being American agents. They tried to charge Chapo with uh, some of those murders years ago. It was raised that he was uh, one of the people involved. Hmm. But I think that got dropped. It didn't. It wasn't included when, when he was extradited, at least. Yeah, in the, in the trial in the United States, they didn't include in individual murders. It wasn't a murder case. They included, it, they used, the, they showed the murders to support the charges against him for drug trafficking. Uh, but it was interesting. There was no, there wasn't the murders. There wasn't gun trafficking charges, even though he moved a lot of guns down to Mexico as well. It was about drugs, and he'd do life for the drugs anyway. So Narcos pretty much showed that Caro Quintero engineered Sans Emilio himself, but that was floating around California and all these other states before. Yeah. But he did have a role in the mass production of it in this arid. Yeah. What, what, what happened there? So, yeah, there was a real ranch uh, there was a real ranch there uh, known as the Buffalo, in real life, the Buffalo Ranch that that scene's based on. Uh, they changed the state, I think, in the in, in the TV series, but it was in Chihuahua and it was it was really in a kind of desert area and they pumped a bunch of water there and it was apparently really sense Amelia. And they, uh, and he was, you know, there was these various shareholders and he was, you know, it was kind of his project, Caracantero's project. So, it was yeah making marijuana on an incredible industrial scale they just like had a huge huge marijuana plantation and you know at the time you know this is going back to the 80s so i mean nowadays the market for selling marijuana from mexico is tougher because now they're producing a lot of marijuana legally in california in washington state in a whole bunch of places but back then it was like this was, you know, you, they had a you know a big illegal market in marijuana. There's still some of it now. They can still grow marijuana in Mexico now, and sell it in the United States. Uh, but back then, it was yeah, it was it, it was a huge deal. So we've got this original Mexican cartel, Guadalajara based, three principals: El Padrino, Caracantero, Don Neto. Their obstacle is the 2,000-mile... Is it 2,000-mile border, did yeah, you say? Yeah, 2,000 miles, yeah. What methods did this original cartel use in the beginning then to get the drugs into America? So then they do some just flying over the border, uh, which you're saying your your friend, the guy you knew, flew loads, and I've talked to guys who flew loads then as well uh, in this period in the 80s. And then it was quite easy to fly private planes over the border. Uh, so planes full of drugs. Yeah, that's what and he did. Yeah, just just, just fly them over. Now it's 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 harder. Uh, now you can still then and now walk over the border. Just walk over with 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 backpacks full of drugs. So the way they do that, you know, to this day, is you have they normally pack into twenty five kilo loads of marijuana. Now you get paid for carrying a twenty five kilo. Now some will double up and carry fifty kilos on their back, but that's the same as a sack of cement. So imagine walking over the desert with a sack of cement on your back. Um, but yeah, these guys will do that you know, for a payment, just, just walk into the United States over the desert. Now, the, 
to this day, I mean, you know, obviously over the years, you get every every method for taking drugs into the US. So you get, you know, air, you know, walking over, you've got giant catapults <laughs> throwing drugs over the wall, <laughs> climbing over the wall with backpacks of drugs. And there's, there's a video, which I think Donald Trump commented in reaction to that video, which a, a journalist I know took that video where they're on the US side of Nogales and they saw some people climbing over the fence, over the border fence with two backpacks full of drugs. They saw them on the, with the video filming and the guys were like, you know, what are you filming? And they carried on filming. They went back into the United States and just climbed. It just shows how easily they climbed the wall. <laughs> tunnels, obviously, big deal. Now, tunnels apparently began, is what a guy told me, a, a smuggler in Nogales told me that the tunnels began as naturally occurring underground rivers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they would go under the border and they, they used those and gradually made them bigger. And then Chapa was obviously very big with making tunnels. But the real place for taking a huge amount of drugs over the border are the official crossings and hiding them in cars and in trucks. And, you know, they call them, you know, the, the old school method is, is in tires, uh, but you have, uh, they will call them trap cars, very sophisticated uh, secret compartments. Some of them are weird, like they really have to like turn on the air conditioning, do this, do that, and suddenly like the compartment will open. Um, but like it's because there's so many vehicles crossing the border, you cannot physically search them all. You can only search a pretty tiny percentage. I mean, well, you know this too well yourself. <laughs> That's what I relied on to get my XC across. Uh, and which border Nogales. was that? Nogales. Nogales. Oh, right, Nogales. Yeah. And it was cars? Yeah, like a nice brand new SUV, University yeah. of Arizona stickers, diving tanks, computers, pills screwed into computer towers. Yeah, yeah. All tourists, brick a brack, been down spring break, you know, all the tourist traffic, all the students all backed up. And where were you hiding the, the ecstasy? So... The ecstasy would get put on a flight um, from Paris to Mexico City. It'd be purchased mm. over in Holland and mm. then took over to France. Mm. Um, this was before 9-11. Mm. Some of the smugglers just had them in pillowcases. Mm. You could just put them on a plane in pillowcases yeah. back then. But if they wanted to be more secure, <laughs> they screwed into yeah. computer towers or something yeah. more secure. So Mexico City... Uh, either fly over to Hermosillo if they didn't want to risk that flight, just get on the bus. Mm. One guy got on a bus. Um, took s- several days to get to <laughs> from Mexico City to get to where we were in Puerto Penasco. Mm. So once that person's finished his route, pills are handed over to me in Puerto Penasco, mm. and then I've got other teams of smugglers taking them over the the uh, American border. It was actually. Um, we had one smuggler who flew into Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport with the pills. Mm. And the DEA weren't, weren't too hip, or the customs weren't too hip, because they stopped her, took her into a, a room, she had them in vitamin jars, mm. they opened the luggage, put the vitamin jars on the table, said to her, what are they? She goes, um, vitamins? And they went, cool, have a nice day, and put them back in the luggage. <laughs> so I consulted a lawyer after that, mm. and it was the lawyer who told me to go through Mexico. Mm. Yeah. So, so yeah, so I mean, yeah, the, I mean, the, and but going through the the Gullis, I mean, obviously a lot easier than 
going to the border then. Another way was trains for a long time, freight trains. There's these big freight trains that go between Mexico and the United States. They hide loads of drugs in these long freight trains. But to this day, that land border is something they can't, they haven't been able to stop. I mean, right, all this war on drugs the last 10, 15 years particularly, all this violence in Mexico. Drugs are still going over that border all the time. I mean, just look at the numbers. They're not changing. I mean, it seems to be more changing according to the habits of what drugs Americans want rather than what they're really succeeding in stopping getting over the border. Um, but they 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 haven't found a way to to seal that and to stop drugs going over there. We're going to get to all that towards the end. Mm. All right then. So we've done the formation of the Guadalajara cartel, and then along comes Kiki Camarina. Mm. What's Kiki's story? What, why did he become? How did he get in this position? So Kiki Camarena uh, is one of. Uh, of what have been many Mexican-American DA agents. And if you look at all the people who have done the infiltrations in Mexico, it's been Mexican-American agents. Obviously, the Anglo-American agents haven't been able to infiltrate the cartels in the same way. So you look at other other guys like Mike Vigil, who's a a Mexican-American from from New Mexico, who's the longest-serving DA agent in Mexico, did like 13 years altogether, and did a lot of infiltration work. Uh, you look at various, uh, some other FBI, the FBI agent who was um, threatened by Osel Cardenas personally, it's also Mexican-American. Uh, there's been various you know, Mexican-American agents who have come from these border communities and been recruited and had the, been able to infiltrate cartels through, through, through the, the language, through the whole thing of, of, of understanding. For actually saying that, Kikamara did not do the infiltration in the same way, did not do the heavy undercover work like some of them have done. I mean, I, you know, I have an interview in my, my first book with a DA agent, DA agent who did quite heavy undercover of going into the cartels and, and actually saying, I want to buy large amounts of cocaine. Kikamara Kik was not really doing that. He was doing more street stuff, talking to informants and, and kind of getting a sense of, of what was happening there. Now, he went down there from the United States to Guadalajara and was frustrated by the lack of progress, was kind of hungry to try and make the bus. And, and him and some other people were like sending messages back to Washington saying, this is a serious situation down here. We've got a serious drug cartel. This is like, you know, you, you can have a Columbia on, on, on the US doorstep, which eventually it has become. And putting a lot of pressure to on the Mexican government to commit raising at that time um, as you were saying it shows the corruption the Mexican crime is completely interlinked with law enforcement yeah, massively to the point where often you don't you, know, you really can't tell the difference I mean there can be policemen you're interviewing <laughs> that either I'm interviewing I don't really know are they legitimate policemen or are these drug cartel figures um, there's you know policemen who will come out afterwards and be like you know they'll, they'll find they're, they're serial murderers for the cartels you know it's worth being a policeman so you know you really have got you know uh, basically this intermingling of law enforcement uh, and the cartels so with the, this uh, police and cartel structure they got annoyed by Kikamarena 
and eventually there was an order given to pick him up and he was tortured to death, you know, and murdered in a very brutal way. And for the US authorities, this was like a real point, you know, this is a, you know, a fallen hero, one of theirs, murdered in Mexico. Should I just stop you saying, because I'm writing a book um, called mm -hmm. The War on Drugs. The yeah. war on drugs. Uh, we are being lied to. Sorry, the war on drugs. Yeah. So I'm researching exactly how he was killed. Yeah. And here's my draft. So I'll read it to you and let let, let me see if this con is consistent with what your yeah. own uh, research. The torture began with slaps and punches to his neck and face. He was blindfolded, his hands tied behind his back, and then they broke his nose and the bone above his eyes. When he was unconscious, a doctor arrived. They washed some of the blood off him, threw cold water onto his face, and he revived. They wanted names and to know how the DEA obtained information. Electrical wires tied to his testicles delivered shocks. While he screamed and flailed, a screw was positioned on his skull, which turned and bore into his skull. Um, Leave my family alone, he repeated. Please don't hurt my family. When they asked for names and addresses, there were more slaps, punches, electric shocks, and teeth removed. Men jumped off a bed onto his back, breaking his ribs, which pierced his lungs. A red-hot iron rod inserted into his anus created a new level of screams. Judges and police who listened to the tape, eventually later on re uh, recording of the torture, reported that it had made them vomit and they had uh, endless sleepless nights. Mm. Is that consistent with... Um, I mean, that sounds pretty much how it might well have gone down. I mean, I haven't listened to the tapes personally. I mean, the tapes out, are out there uh, somewhere. I mean, there must be some way to get hold of those tapes and, and hear those tapes are out there. I don't know, you know exactly who's got them now. Uh, but that's kind of been reported and, and I reported on the uh, the autopsy of the body, which, which showed those wounds. I mean, it was a kind of blunt blow to the head, which kind of caved in his skull, I think, how how he died and 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 the uh you know basically he was uh you know raped with a with a with arm as well I mean, it was pretty, pretty pretty brutal uh yeah very very sad things for that uh there'd been a lot of you know not a lot of horrific violence in mexico and it's you know one of one of many but for the u.s authorities was something which has kind of you know led to this you know it's been a real marking point a real changing point and something being seen as a fallen hero uh, of one of their men going down the front lines so talking about the symbiotic relationship then between the the politicians and the kingpins mm. um i'll just read you a bit more of what i've wrote for this this war on drugs book mm. so some of the people who are involved in the actual kidnapping mm. and who took him back to the house and were present at the house mm. don neto's property where all this went down mm. One of those state policemen ended up in U.S. witness protection, mm. and he gave information to the DEA guy Hector Belarez Operation um, yeah. uh, Leander, Leander, was yeah. it? Which was to, to find out what would actually happen to you know who, yeah. why why he'd been killed, etc. So Rawl, the state policeman, told Hector, the DEA guy, that in the living room, while he was being tortured, were the cabinet. Secretary Bartlett Diaz, mm. Defense Secretary General Arevalo Gardoki, Interpol Head Miguel Aldana, Felix 
Rodriguez, mm. who was known as, I think, Max Gomez, who was CIA uh, friend of George H.W. Bush. DFS head Sergio Espino Verdin and Juan Mata Ballesteros, mm. the Honduran trafficker and airline company owner who provided flight services to the CIA. So the DA, the DA guy, Hector, had m multiple uh, witnesses state this. Three mm. witnesses stated that these people were there. Mm. So he submitted all that in the DA, DEA 6 mm. to his bosses and um, reporting the connection between the cartel, the DFS, the Mexican government, the CIA, and the response he received warned him to stick to investigating Kiki's murder, which was his job, and he was never to investigate a sister agency again. So with the information compiled by Berales, um, established all the senior players, including three witnesses putting those guys in Don Neto's house, um, Eventually, because he was pushing this over the years, mm. the guy that was in charge of uh, Leander, the investigation into the death, he ended up ridiculed by his superiors for claiming that Mexico's political leaders were mixing with traffickers, which was ridiculous. Mm. He was put under investigation himself for coaching witnesses to commit perjury. Mm. And threatened with extradition to Mexico for kidnapping the doctor who was present yeah, yeah. At, at, at the torture. Yeah. So um, just one more parry off here. Mm. He uh, spoke to someone who said that his, his ultimate conclusion was a goal of Kiki's operation, Padrino, was to seize the drug money. And the beneficiaries of that cash extended way beyond the traffickers, as well as the senior politicians, police and army, Money was being used for weapons and to support and fund the war in, in Nicaragua, which was a big cause of, yeah. of the Reagan administration. So do you think it's credible that all the top Mexican politicians were there or involved to some extent and the money was, you know, the money they were siphoning from this was at, was at risk? Yeah. I think uh, without, I think, um, without a doubt, the Mexican system, political system was at that time, you know, and through through the years, has been incredibly corrupt. Uh, at that time, yeah, there was, say, the cartel and the police was, you know, you know where one starts, another stop. There was politicians getting money from this. Uh, it's you know, without without a doubt, I think the, um, you know, if people were there in the room. You know exactly in the room who they're accusing of being there. Uh, yeah, sure, it's 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 possible that you know these people could be in the room. Uh, it's you know that that case has been, then there's been going back and forth on this about that case for for some time. This, his witnesses said they were in the room next to the room mm, where yeah. he's been tortured. The politicians were in the neck in another come, room. Yeah, in, come in to, house, into yeah. the room. Yeah, into, into the yeah. house. Yeah, um, with the figure of. The CIA, which is, you know, and the role of the CIA with the uh, Guadalajara cartel in, in that case and then various other cases. There's, so obviously there's the, the okay, with, with this case and then there's the case of the Dark Alliance, the Gary Webb, which is probably, is that a part of your book as well? The Gary I wrote, Webb. I wrote America, um, American Made, yeah. Um, 
about uh, Barry Seal, and he was flying yeah. weapons to the Contras, and yeah. So that linked into what Gary Webb wrote about. And actually, in this book, we are being lied to. It's a four or five different people's stories, yeah, intertwined. And um, Gary Webb is one of the people. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so I mean, I think Gary Gary Webb's reporting on the Seattle Dark Alliance is very solid. I think most of that, the CIA, it kind of had a weird thing when the CIA kind of put it out, eventually a kind of report on this, where they kind of conceded to a lot of it, but they kind of threw out stuff against it. I think the, I mean, the fact that the CIA worked with, at least with drug traffickers, if they're not, moving drugs themselves but working with drug traffickers who, for a reason you can see that as well in you know in Afghanistan with the Northern Alliance as well uh, so yeah I mean the CIA involvement is there's there's certainly a lot of fire there as well with the CIA involvement with the CIA thing with Kit Camarena there's still some of that's like a bit nebulous exactly like among the players and exactly who did what. So with the the relationship of some of these players and exactly like, because also with the CIA, you have CIA like assets and CIA operatives, you know, and the hardcore CIA people and exactly now how much of, of what happened there, were they covering up, protecting their assets or how much, at what level are they actually operating, controlling things? Some of that's still a bit nebulous and blurry. But yeah, there's 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 definitely real fire, real fire there. Because one of the policemen who was in Don Neto's house, he was assigned to like, he was like yeah. a communi- head of communications in the house. Um, yeah. He said none of the cartel had ever used a tape recorder. And even, they wouldn't even know how to use a tape recorder. Mm. And all of a sudden, they're tape recording this guy. Mm. Obviously, an outside... Yeah. force asked them to do that mm. and um, the conclusion of, of, of this stuff um, of um, the stuff that I've been, been writing recently was that they only wanted to get information from Kiki but it was the psychopathy of Carol Quintero that took it too far because when Don Neto mm. came back to the house and he was told Kiki was dead he went off to another property and started shooting off his gun. He was so angry because mm. he could see the writing on the wall. Yeah. Although Felix Gallardo survived. I mean, so Caracantero, like, you know, was taken down that year. Um, Costa Felix, Rica, was it? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Costa Rica. And take it back. Felix Gallardo survived this and survived until 88 when the Salinas government came in and then you know he was taken down then so uh, i mean i think the, the the level of corruption among the mexicans and the mexican involvement you know at very high levels and throughout the the, the police force especially like the you know the, this dfs force then it's not even really a big secret or that controversial anymore it's like you can say this in mexico it's not this isn't even even controversial to say now uh, i mean uh, you know the level of you know saying that there's high level and you know politicians and governors and um you know you get into some debate when it's exactly accusing specifically presidents 
I mean, when you get to the case of Salinas, but then, you know, Salinas, you have the brother of the president, Raul Salinas. So the, uh, the, the so after Miguel Angel Felix Guiado was taken down under the Salinas presidency, and he was then arrested, and then the brother of Salinas, Raul Salinas, was investigated by Swiss authorities who said he had more than $500 million in Swiss accounts. And they did an investigation. They concluded in their investigation that this was drug money, that he was getting this as taxing all of the cartels. There's a whole bunch of stuff there. But he hasn't been convicted of that. He went on trial. He was arrested for a murder, the brother of the president. And so. so this stuff isn't even really, I think, a big secret or controversial to say anymore. I mean, the Mexican system has been extremely corrupt and and this has been a major reason behind all the violence as well. Well, that's good to hear from someone who's uh, living it and has done as much, yeah. has as much experience and, and done as mm. much research as yourself. That will add a lot more credibility mm. to the information that we're putting out there in general. Uh, was was Salinas the one, was he the, uh, which was the one that ended up in the mansion in Ireland? president yeah yeah that's right carlos salinas that was him that was yeah. that was the other that was yeah. the one that was the president yeah but it was his brother who ended up at the money in yeah. his accounts okay all right so we talked earlier about the fo original formation of the one cartel yeah but now yeah how did it go from one cartel to all of this division throughout mexico and then all of the violence that followed yeah so you know I mean, so you had this this big Guadalajara cartel. You also actually had from an er earlier days another cartel over on the east side of Mexico, which is the Gulf Cartel. And so you had the Guadalajara cartel, which is really the Sinaloans and really moving and controlling the border from the Pacific Ocean right through to kind of half of the border there, the Sinaloans. But on the other side, the Gulf of Mexico, you had the Gulf Cartel emerging and really, you know, with its roots going back to bootlegging alcohol back in the 1930s. You had another kind of major criminal organization there. So you had the, the kind of gold cartel gaining more power as well in the Guadalajara cartel. Now, when the Guadalajara cartel, uh, you know, after Feliz Gallardo was arrested, supposedly by a policeman, he said himself, and, and he, he's, he talked in correspondence to a, a journalist called Diego Sorno, um, who, through his son, gave questions through his son into the prison. He said himself he was arrested by a policeman he used to go and meet to discuss terms with. You know, he'd go and meet this policeman, you know, all the time. And basically, he went, went to one meeting, the policeman said, oh, yeah, I've got to arrest you. So his orders came from the presidency. You know, you, you can no longer run the show. So after he was arrested, there was this meeting that's talked about, first uncovered by the journalist uh, Blanconelas from Tijuana, who's a great journalist. When I first arrived in Mexico, I was just to call this journalist Blanconelas to, to ask him, uh, you know, questions and stuff. And he survived himself being shot. He survived four four bullets being fired at him. He used to always used to use uh, baseball uh, metaphors to me. He used to say like, oh, that trafficker you're talking about, he's like, he'd be playing in the minor leagues. Uh, that guy will be in the New York Yankees. You know, that was the way <laughs> where he would talk. But anyway, he, he first uncovered this meeting that the, the traffickers had in Acapulco following the arrest of Felix Gallardo. And they said, we're going to divide like territories out and they have these different bosses controlling different territories. You have the Ariana Felix 
controlling Tijuana. You have Chapo uh, with the area of the Sonora Desert. You have Carrillo Fuentes in Juarez. So dividing these territories for them. And these emerged into different cartels in the border. They managed to they started fighting amongst themselves and emerged into different organizations. So the power kind of really went from the center of Mexico to the border areas. Who controlled the border, controlled the money. So you had the Juarez cartel, the Tijuana cartel, the Gulf cartel sitting on the other side, and the Sinaloa cartel controlling the Sonora, Arizona desert. So you kind of four cartels on the border there. Now from four, you know, four was even a bit more manageable. When the, the, the attack on drug cartels happened, particularly under Felipe Calderon from 2006 onwards, you'd hit these cartels and they'd break into two. So you'd hit the Sinaloa cartel, it'd break into the Sinaloa cartel and the Beltran Leva cartel. You hit the Gulf cartel and it breaks into the Gulf cartel and the Setas. Then they kept on hitting these cartels and these cartels kept on, you'd take out leaders, so you'd have like lieutenants below them breaking into their own organizations. So from the, you know, you had the Gulf Cartel, the Setas, and then the Setas, now you break into the Cartel de Noreste, the Setas old school, the Setas vieja escuela, the Setas new blood, Setas nueva sangre. Uh, you have this other system merging with the uh, Knights Templar, La Familia, this is called Nacero Moreno in the south. From the Beltran Leva cartel, when they were hit really hard, and Arturo Beltran Leva um, was killed, and other brothers, you had a whole bunch of cartels or cartelitos, like small cartels, emerging from them. So you had um, people called like Los Rojos, Los Guerreros, Los, Guer Los Guerreros Unidos, um, Los Este, the, the Independent Cartel of Acapulco, all these groups, and now you've got so many of these groups and this new big cartel emerging called the new generation of the Jalisco cartel, the cartel Jalisco Nueva Generación. And they emerged from the kind of faction that was stood in Guadalajara and merging with some of the people from Michoacán, including their leader, El Mencho. And they're like a very uh, paramilitary style cartel. They, you know, some of their guys have shot down a military helicopter with an RPG-7. Uh, some of the, uh, they, they had a, a like a little factory where they're making their own, assembling their own AR-15 assault rifles. Uh, and they've been fighting the Sinaloa Cartel for a lot of territory all around Mexico. So you throw out a lot of names, a lot of different uh, names of cartels and kingpins there. There's some fascinating stories in mm. the mix. So I'll, I'll ask you individually about some mm. of those characters, if you, if you can give us the, the, the backgrounds and what ultimately happened to them. So Lord of the Skies, yeah. what was his story? So, you know, whereas Cartels have been using airplanes for a long time, he really invested in bigger planes. So Lord of the Skies, because he invested in like, you know, much larger aircraft to take cocaine, particularly from Colombia to Mexico. So big flights, fly the cocaine from Colombia to Mexico and then bounce it into the United States. So, so he had a, a bunch of planes. He was operating out of Sierra Juarez. Then there's a crazy story as well where he uh, supposedly died in a plas plastic surgery accident. 
and then the people who were doing the plastic surgery were then killed and their bodies were like thrown in, in places and there's concrete filled up. Now, obviously there's conspiracy theories there when somebody dies in the supposed weird plastic surgery accident. There's like weird stories there, you know, theories there that he survived and he's living somewhere out there. <laughs> and you got you know other crazy stories there, like I mean, this guy, that guy who ran the setas for a long time, Heriberto Lascano, known as the executioner, who really led the setas after they broke away from the Gulf Cartel to become this really powerful organization. He was killed by some Mexican Marines, and his body was then stolen from a place where it was being treated. I went to the place where his body was stolen from. It was like a kind of private. Um, a private uh, uh, like place that does autopsies because apparently the, the Marines killed him, didn't know he was, gave him to this private place to say, I'll do the autopsy. But they also took the fingerprints. Suddenly the fingerprints came through and they realized it was the leader of the setas. Went back there and the body had disappeared. When we when we went there, I went there with a, a fellow journalist uh, and we, we sit and we speak to the head of the uh, of this autopsy place and he just like basically ran out the back door, just didn't want to speak to us. He was just like, obviously, like, just terrified of saying any more about the situation. The yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Most people are familiar with Chapo now from the news mm. headlines, his recent arrest, but they're not familiar with his backstory. Yeah. So how did Chapo rise to power? So El Chapo comes from this small village in the mountain Sinaloa, uh, a village called La Tuna. Which, which I've been to, and, and, and uh, it's a, a rugged village in the mountains uh, with you know, mountain people living up there for, for, for hundreds of years in, in, in tough conditions. Uh, and he says himself on, a, on, on the video with, with Rolling Stone when he gave this, this, this video interview there that he began when he was about 15, which would have been about 73. He was born in 58. He began to get involved in working in the fields with the opium. So, you know, you have the the, the, the opium fields and you, you have the people uh, taking the, 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 the gum out of the opium, which then made into heroin. And, and he got involved in the trade. And then he emerged under Felix Gallardo, uh, under this, the, the, the padrino. He emerged under him and became you know, a more well-known trafficker and they, they talked about him being known as El Rapido, the, the, the fast one because he could move drugs quickly into the United States and, and his use of tunnels. Now, I will say with El Chapo, there's a, there's a, you know, again with this weird mix of myth and reality and sometimes it's hard to know when one begins and when the other stopped. I think he, he the way he got boosted to superstar status and he's he is the you know what I would say one of the three most infamous criminals in the world in the last 150 years. You can go Al Capone, Pablo Escobar, and El Chapo. They can put him up there. You know that's probably the three most infamous criminals in the world there's been. But like, why is he up there and not so many of these other Mexican drug traffickers? And I think it's partly it was the media itself kind of feeding off this. The fact he escaped from two prisons. I think a bit his name, El Chapo, Chapo Guzman, had a ring to it, which people kind of... Do you, know, it, do you know how he did those escapes? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we know the stories how, how he did those. I mean, the first one that he went out in a laundry cart <laughs> and the second one that he went out in a tunnel mm. um, with a rail and, and a motorcycle. I mean, as always, there's, there's always like questioning of those stories even. And you know, a lot of people don't believe that he went out the tunnel, but that he walked out the front, think he walked out the front door. I mean, a lot of people believe that. They think, no, no, that, that whole tunnel was a kind of setup and it was all a fake a fake thing to like divert from the real story of him just simply walking out the front door of the prison but like um but like his, his kind of superstar status i think is you know those things and it feeds off because then sean penn meets el chapo and what, then that, what was all that yeah, about? yeah sean penn then meets Can el you explain chapo, what why on earth he went to that meeting i mean you know did he fancy that mexican tv star was kate, that part kate of it? de castillo was he thinking of his dick Chapo, yeah, Chapo, yeah, may may well be, yeah, may well may well have been. That's the, you know, there was this the, the story that because he she was in this um again the weird merging of reality and fiction. She played. There was a book written called The Queen of the South by a Spanish writer, where he invented a imaginary drug trafficker who was a female drug queen pin, queen of the South. Then there was a real female drug trafficker, or Sandra Beltran, who the government probably named the queen of the Gulf, based probably on the TV series. So people kind of get mixed up between the, the fictional and her. And then Kate de Castillo who then played the Queen of the South, people can get mixed up between, so you get kind of, so so she played the drug trafficker in this TV series. And and it was very popular. This stuff's popular with drug traffickers themselves. They like watching some of these TV shows or young people watch them and it kind of... Now, afterwards, she, she had this, this strange moment where maybe kind of being swept away from playing this role of a drug trafficker, she kind of wrote this thing saying... You know, I trust drug traffickers more than the politicians. They this should, was a tweet, wasn't it? Yeah, they should traffic with love. Um, you know, this kind of thing. So supposedly Chapo then approached her through this kind of thing, saying, you know, we, we could meet. He apparently had never heard of Sean Penn. Didn't know who Sean Penn was. She was talking with Sean Penn. Sean Penn had his own agenda about, I'm going to write a piece for the Rolling Stone magazine. Now, yeah, I mean, I can't criticize Sean Penn for doing that because, you know, I mean, it's a journalistic coup to an extent. Um, him doing risky that, one, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's risky. I mean, I mean, what I what I don't, um, I, I don't criticize him for doing that because I would have done it if I didn't be with a chap. I would have done it. What I don't, um, uh, what uh, I feel Sean Penn could do is give it. You know, if he if he likes journalists and in ju- journalism give support to journalists and journalism, which he doesn't seem to care that much for, for journalists. He does his thing, but doesn't really um, support journalists much who covered this or, or hasn't kind of learned Spanish or made much effort here. But whatever, he, he, he got this meeting. And the purpose of the meeting was what? So they, they were going to supposedly, supposedly going to discuss like exclusive rights to a film TV series on Chapo's life. So there was vanity in this. Then. Yeah, e- I think for, I mean, El Chapo for some time had been, like even gone back and thought about the idea of a TV series. So if you look at the Chapo myth is, and how much of that is 
perpetuated by El Chapo. You know, the whole issue of narco corridos, like drug ballads, like they pay people to write songs about them. So like you, 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 know, you, you talk to drug ballad writers in Sinaloa and they say, yeah, how much, this is how much I charge. You know, I'll charge $1,000, i charge $5,000, i charge $10,000 to write a song about you. So I could write the, the ballad of Sean and you could write, you know, like <laughs> Sean the Great Ecstasy Trafficker and they could have, you know, have all the, the lyrics, you know, the, the, the lyrics talking about what a, what, you know, what a, what a, what a brave ecstasy trafficker he is and that would be heard on the streets and everyone like, oh yeah, you know. Probably at risk of then like Sammy the Bull <laughs> on yeah. that person. <laughs> yeah, so, so like, I mean, people, within the culture, this is like promoting yourself is already un, is kind of accepted already in the culture you kind of create. Now, some of them don't, some of them are backed away from this and want to be more secret, but there's a kind of idea among the Sinaloan drug traffickers, that's what they do, they promote themselves. So there's been other ones, you know, the you know, Barbie, there's talk about him, he met with TV producers, and there was a film, there's been like the kind of narco B-movies made of some of these guys. So from their point of view, it's like, okay, I'm going to make a movie about my exploits and stuff. And and people, you know, in Sinaloa, you talk to a lot of people from that area, from those mountains, they all say El Chapo is a folk hero. El Chapo, you know, came here to this place and he built a road and he was giving out money and, you know, I saw him and he was... A, that's what people say. So this goes to their heads. That's the reality they live in. Everyone thinks they're amazing. Everyone thinks they're providing money. That's what they're kind of, at, you know. So I'll make a film about yourself. And and Sean Penn was there and 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 you know wrote this story about it uh, for Rolling Stone. It was a tough choice for the Rolling Stone editors. Then when they got you know the story moved a lot, it became a very famous story. But all this kind of adds to this mythology of El Chapo. But really, so the defence. I went to some of the trial in New York, and uh, the defence was, oh, El Chapo is not really the head of the Sinaloa cartel. And what about this guy El Mayo? You know, is El Mayo really the head of Sinaloa Cartel? And he might well be a senior figure to El Chapo. In fact, from the first times I went to Sinaloa, many people then were saying, oh, really, El Mayo's a more powerful figure, El Mayo Zambada. So, so yeah, it's hard to know. But I think it was kind of, I think the, the Sinaloa Cartel was never, perhaps never a, a, a big single company. It's more like a big association of drug traffickers. Like you have an association of tequila producers and you might have somebody who's representing the traffickers, but they don't have control over all of the different traffickers. There's a whole bunch of traffickers who club together. So like they say, like, we want to traffic cocaine. Uh, let's move 20 tons of cocaine uh, on a ship from Colombia to a port in Mexico. Okay, I'm going to put in for five tons. He can put in for five tons. That guy can put in four tons. Another couple can put, you know, put in another three and three and we make up the weight there. Yeah, it was U.S. prosecutors who defined cartels, wasn't it? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, they, they in their cases, if you look at the way U.S. law is made, they have conspiracy cases and they need organizations. So it helps to make names there. I think, the, I think when Pablo Escobar first used the word, he liked the idea of, at the time, like OPEC, and that was like the petroleum cartel. And his ideas as well are like, we're a cartel, we're powerful. And, you know, this quotes attributed to him of, you know, cocaine's the atomic bomb I'm going to drop in America and that kind of thing. 
So, do you think that this meeting with Sean Penn and the actress mm. led to Chapo's arrest? How soon after that meeting was he yeah, arrested? So, not directly. There, there you know, could have been an influence, not directly. There was, uh, they had the meeting, and then there was a first attempt. So, so this was following, obviously, following his. No, his, his first arrest back in the nineties, then he escape in. 2001, January 2001. Second escape in 2014. So 13 years on the run. And people would say in the village that in that time that he would be in this, there's a house. They said that was his house he lived in in that time. And he would you know, have big parties in the village for you know, a lot of that time. But it was it's very hard for law enforcement to get up to that mountain because if they have any big movement of law enforcement, you, need, you obviously need a lot of people to go there, a lot of guns to go and get him. Then any big movement of soldiers, either by air or by ground, everyone's going to know. So he can go off and hide. So you can live up in that mountain area. You've got a very, very good defensive place to live up there. Then he survived um, up until 2014, and then you know eventually got slack. And there was you know the whole issue of you know DEA involved in tracking and, and, and triangulating phones and so forth and using technology to go after him. So arrested in 2014. Escapes 2015. And then that, that was crazy. When I'm not getting a phone call <laughs> that morning, like, uh, you know, it was a Sunday morning. I remember getting woken up with a phone. You know, Chapa Guzman's escaped, you know, like, <laughs> get on that story. So then um, he escapes then, but. He's not being, you know, he's already been not being his 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 defense, his, the way he's controlling police, the way he's he's controlling, you know, the area is not as good as it was. He's already kind of slacker. So then they have this meeting in the mountains of Sinaloa. Quite sure that they, they might well have followed Kate de Castillo or Sean Penn there to this meeting. There might have been a following there. They tried to get him quite soon afterwards, but he escaped that. With an injury, supposedly. So, if there was a direct from that attempt to, to arrest him, he escaped that. But then he was caught in Los Mochis in January 2016, which is the whole story then of him in Los Mochis. You know exactly how they got to that house; it's uncertain. There's one story that they 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 were that he was living. In, I mean, I went to the house where he was arrested in Mochis, and it's like. Got a regular middle class house. There's one store that they were got suspicious about large amounts of food being ordered. Doesn't sound very Oh yeah, I read that one. <laughs> it doesn't sound yeah, doesn't yeah. sound very convincing. That, <laughs> that would sound like that, no, someone's ordered a lot of pizzas. Must be old chapel. It sounds like it sounds like more likely something else, some other kind of intelligence is gonna get them there. But anyway, they got him in in, in Mochis, you know, he he is you know, he tried to escape again. Uh, you know, going through the drain there, and then being arrested on the on the street. So you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't hold Sean Penn uh, totally responsible. I, I I remember I asked I got a question to Sean Penn through a different reporter for a story I did on the trial uh, before asking about how he just trying to say how he felt if the video that they took was used as evidence for his conviction and he said well that's his choice to make that video uh 
So, because there was one point, there was talk of Sean Penn being subpoenaed to the court, forced to witness about his meeting in the trial. <laughs> that would have been quite a show <laughs> if he did that, but that, that didn't happen. Mm. So you said you were at the trial? Yeah, I went to some of it, yeah. I went for, I went for a week at the trial. I went for a week. Uh, I saw um, the, the, you know, closing statements. Uh, it was, you know, quite a show. You had these uh, three lawyers for El Chapo, these real characters. I mean, it was crazy seeing El Chapo, you know, being that close to see El Chapo. Yeah, right how far there. away from him were you? I mean, you know, not. I mean, a few feet away. Yeah. I mean, he, I mean, you're you're seeing him there in the flesh, I and mean, that was obviously a, a. Did he feel like a powerful presence? You know, it, it's you know because you, you know you know who the guy is, uh, so it's you know, it's like there was people there um, who who came. You know, I remember one couple there who flew from San Francisco, like Mexican-Americans flew from San Francisco to come and see, just to be at the trial, queuing up in the morning. Uh, he, you know, he was, obviously, you know, it's like, you know, the presence is there. Um, he looked, it's interesting, in his village, I met his, you know, cousin, his mother, and it's interesting how much they, the, the mannerisms and how much they look very close in his family. You kind of see it there. He was, you know, trimming his suit. What about his eyes? Did he have the killer eyes? Yeah, I mean, he looks smart. I mean, they 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 they, they look. I mean, they. I guess Goodbye kind of had this like sharkish look in his eyes. He doesn't. He doesn't. He didn't look. I guess one of the things, the alluring things about him, is he doesn't like you know some of these guys just come across as really violent. This guy doesn't have you know this. Obviously, he's got a certain genius there. Uh But anyway, I mean, the the thing was a crazy show. Uh, like you had uh, the lawyer, so you had three lawyers. You had Lichtman, who was this guy who'd like done mafia trials and this kind of crazy show he was doing. And in this closing statement, he was trashing the witnesses. There was fourteen cooperating witnesses against El Chapo, uh, and one of them, some of them were the Cifuentes. This the, the, these traffickers come traffickers of Cifuentes, and he was like saying it's kind of crazy show, and he talked to the jury saying saying, would you buy a used car off the Cifuentes? Would you trust the Cifuentes to babysit your children? <laughs> so why are you going to believe what they say? <laughs> you know, like it's kind of crazy stuff he come out with. And then there's the other, the other lawyer uh, um, who was uh, Eduardo Balareso, is Ecuadorian, a uh, uh, guy from Ecuador. He's an interesting character as well who was the, one of the guys who'd first kind of uh, linked up with El Chapo. He'd also represented uh, Beltran Leva. An interesting thing. The beard. Yeah, the beard, or, or rather his brother, uh, uh, Hector uh, Alfredo Beltran Leva, uh, Mochomo, who's in prison. An interesting thing, apparently, this is kind of some, some of the weird stuff to figure out. A lot of this stuff's hard to make sense of. Uh, so witnessing against El Chapo, were the family members of his supposedly supposed friends. So El Mar Zambada's son and brother witnessed against El Chapo. Hector Beltran Leva, the enemy of El Chapo, the guy they fought the big war with his family, sorry, Alfredo Beltran Leva didn't witness. And lawyers told me that it was Alfredo, it was the Beltran Levas, in fact, who 
recommended these lawyers to El Chapo. Mm. Kind of weird connections there. And and the perhaps it's uh, like they unified against the feds. I, you know, it, it sometimes these these things are. Uh, it's hard to to make sense of the among these Sinaloan traffickers. Um, it, it's what's crazy about these guys. I mean, as you said, these guys from these. I mean, a lot of them are from quite a small area. I mean, Beltran Leva's village is right up against El Chapo's village. You have La Tuna, and right there is La Palma, where the Beltran Levas are from. I mean, you can literally see the one village from the other. And all these guys, these Sinaloan guys, uh, you know, Beltran Levas, uh, Zambada, Guzman, all these families and so many more, all from a pretty small area. Like, what is it about that area that's created these figures and figures that have come from these poor mountain communities and have gone on to control, you know, empires worth billions of dollars or control the drug trade worth so much, you know, move so much drugs, have maybe involved in such a powerful game. So, yeah, I guess it's kind of part of the craziness of all of this. So where's Chapel House now? What was his sentence? And do you think he will be trying to plan an escape? So life. Uh is he already there? Colorado Desert, the... Uh, Supermax. Supermax, yeah. yeah. He's already there now, yeah. I mean, he, he was going to go there right after the trial. Uh, have, you, have you checked? Have you been following the news the last no, couple of days? No, not. But I've it, looked at that prison and it, seen some of the famous yeah. people have been there. Yeah, yeah, Sammy yeah. Sammy was there and John Gotti, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so a Supermax prison in Colorado, which he, he was destined to go to, which he should be there by now. Uh, even if there's any appeals, he was being held in Manhattan, be transferred there to Supermax. Uh, so I tried to interview in there before I wrote, I wrote to the prison before to, a while ago to try to interview Mata Ballesteros because I met his, Mata Ballesteros' son in, uh, in Honduras, interviewed his son there. And then I attempted to go there. They, they didn't want to give me the interview or they said he, did, he didn't want to talk. I, it's very, I, I suppose I know no journalist interview anybody, anybody in there. So it's, it's the most hardcore prison in the United States. Maybe the most hardcore prison in the world. Uh, you're in. There's a you know the, the the list of inmates is a who's who of the biggest you know criminals, terrorists. Do you know any of them off the top of your head? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you already mentioned uh, Sammy the Bull. Yeah, he's out now. Out now. Um, the one of the, the leader of the Aryan Brotherhood. Uh, the shoe bomber. Reed. Richard Richard, Richard Reed, is, Reed. I mean, who was some probably comes some random guy from Brixton or something who like decided to go on a plane and try and blurt up the bomb in his shoe and now has made all of us take our shoes off. Uh, you know, when we get on airplanes, a lot of airplanes. But like, you know, he he's in there. Um, in terms of the uh Latin American gangsters, so you've got Mata Ballesteros, uh Garcia Abrego. He's still there. The, the, the he was the head of the Gulf Cartel for a long time, and you know you're there in uh, solitary confinement, twenty three and a half hours a day or so. Uh, they get you know, you know with lights on. You know people part of their mental state deteriorates very fast in those conditions. You've been in solitary much? Yeah. How, how, well, how long were you in solitary um, for? Probably over approximately a year. Yeah. And I didn't mind it, to be honest, because yeah. I read and did yoga and I'm an introverted person. 
you not you don't have to deal with all of the craziness. Yeah. But I can see if I'd gone longer, I would have gone off the deep end because it does affect you mentally. Yeah. But just getting any one year taste of it compared to what these guys have got. And I can understand how people have been in five years, ten years, they want to kill themselves and they go completely crazy. I completely understand that. I'm not making light of it. But for me personally, just going in from a year after being in Fair. intense um situations. Yeah. Um I didn't mind it. So how many hours a day were you totally by yourself though? All right. So I was put in the super maximum security prison. Um in Arizona in the Arizona State. Yeah. System. I was fast tracked there because the prosecutor She'd done all these dirty tricks on me throughout my remand period because I yeah. wouldn't cooperate. And the final farewell to me was she put my sentence down as 34 years. Mm. Right, it was only nine and a half years. So if your sentence is that high, you get a fast track to Supermax. Um, so they allow you out for a shower every like three days, I think it is. Mm. Shankproof armor, Darth Vader masks. You got to get handcuffed through every, the door. And they every three days, yeah. Yeah, they march you to the to, to the shower. So uh, between that, so uh, you you got no like twenty four hours a day. You got you got no exercise or no. They by law they're supposed to offer you some exercise. So they come around at like five in the morning when you sleep, and they say, "Do you want to go in the handball court?" Mm. And because you sleep and you can't answer them, you don't get it. Mm. And then they say, "Yeah, they've offered you exercise." Mm. But I was in maximum security before that upstairs in um, in um, the Madison Street Jail, Sheriff Joe Arpaio, mm. because of another thing the prosecutor did. I, I went for a bail hearing. My bail was 750000 And the judge doubled my bail to $1.5 because of this dirty trick the prosecutor did. So I was moved to um, the maximum security there. So it was those two periods were back-to-back -back where I did almost a year, completely locked mm. down only allowed out in, the, in that max security actually i was allowed into a day room uh, most days for an hour to have a shower and a phone call mm. and then i had to go back to my cell yeah so so what do you do you think the super max how different do you think that is to uh i mean so Ch chapel was in was in manhattan correctional facility but in the he was in already in very severe conditions then in terms of solitary confinement is it much difference, do you think, between like one and the other? I mean, after a certain point, is it pretty much the same? Or I mean, is it going to be the worst regime in Supermax? Or There's so many factors. Yeah. So Chapo is in the Supermax of Supermaxes. Yeah. Um, Arizona is unique because of the heat. Yeah. And in the in maximum security, in the jail, Arpaio didn't have any kind of... There's a swamp cooler, but it barely worked. Yeah. So they used heat as a form of torture. So my body is completely covered in skin infections and bed sores. I and mean, it looks like I've spilt battery acid on my leg. Mm. And I'm so hot. If I scratch myself, because I'm sweating, mm. clumps of skin are coming off under my nails. Mm. So there's all different factors in different, every state's got different factors at play. But our pyros was considered really brutal because mm. of the, the conditions that he, um, you know, human rights violations were off the scale. Yeah. The feds have got more money. So, so Chapo's in federal supermax. They've got more money. Way way more secure than anywhere in the states, but you know probably um, some things might be slightly better than under Arpaio. Mm. Yeah. So so anyway, uh, I don't think there's an escape there. No, I don't. I don't think he's planning an escape uh, from Supermax. And I, don't, I, I, don't, I, I mean, I always think with the old chapel case, I never want to. 
I, I always say things and, 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 you know, like, you know, you go on TV shows and say something and they, they, they prove it wrong. The, you know, with their chapel cases could be so crazy. You say, oh, this guy could never escape. And then the next day, find the guy's escaped. But it seems like it seems pretty impossible. You think it's possible an escape from uh, Supermax? They said that nobody would escape from, um, what was the one, the Clint Eastwood movie? Alcatraz. Yeah, yeah. They, they don't, we don't think they survived what they did. Yeah. So I, I doubt it. Yeah. I doubt it. Unless, like, there was some kind of disturbance in the whole of the country. Like, the country went, there was a war. Mm. Prisoners have escaped during wars. Mm. Um, and like people, earthquakes, earthquakes, wars, helicopter attack on the on the prison. Yeah, I was I was in Haiti when the earthquake happened. I, well, I went there after the earthquake to Haiti, and there was loads of prisoners escaped then from the prison then. And it, yeah, how I many? Yeah, in earthquakes, so maybe something like that. So if there's an act of God beyond beyond that, beyond like an earthquake, it seems pretty, or like some kind of firequake situation. It seems doesn't seem possible, but yeah, I mean, crazier things have happened. And imagine that they would like give them minimal food and minimal medicals, and it would probably shorten their lifespan if they don't go out in the sun and things like that. They would get sick and die. I imagine in those, in that kind of a place. Yeah, I guess some of these prisons they can live on for a lot of years, can't they? And so, so yeah. I mean, I wonder, like, but you were saying so mentally. I mean, say so you you read a lot, you did a lot of yoga. I mean, if you I had, just stayed completely focused but, on yoga and reading. But you 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 you, can, you could get full access to books. So if you got full access, I mean, if you you know, some of them people are not allowed, just forced to sit there without books and without any kind of stimulation. It's tricky. It's tricky. So when you first get to a place like a high security place, you might just have no books at all, or you might mm. just have a bible. Mm. Under the laws back then, your family members were allowed to send you some books through Amazon. That's That was the state law in Arizona. Mm. But now they've stopped that. Um, in our Pios regime, you could fill out a request for books. It took me a while to even learn you could do this procedure. And I'd pay mm. over inmates to, to fill it out, and I'd, I'd get the book allocation. Mm. So in our Pios jail, all you could request was, a, put down was a genre. Mm. And just pray you got something that you was interested in. So you put a thriller and you get like, you could get, you know, who knows? <laughs> yeah. You get, well, what kind of books were your favorite books? You so were I was putting inside? philosophy, psychology, history. Yeah. Um, and that that journey into literature really gave me a, a, I felt all of my conditioned beliefs being stripped away and it gave me a yeah. re-understanding of the world and how things yeah. work. Yeah. All right. And do you have any strong beliefs now? I mean, you have like uh, any strong I would say ideology or kind of strong beliefs. I like to, I learned that I like to study hmm. beliefs and politics and religion without subscribing to them. Hmm. And I just learned that human, there's something in human nature that makes people form in opposing groups and they hmm. brutalize each other. Usually the one with the most weapons or numbers or technology brutalizes groups with the least. Hmm. Um, you know, and that's just what we've seen played out constantly. Left versus right, mm. Catholic versus Protestant, you know, Mexico versus whatever. Mm. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I feel quite disillusioned. Uh, generally, I, I find it hard. I'd like to, I'd like to be more, you know, have more, uh, believe in something more, believe in a, in, a, in a system of ideology. Like I used to kind of, when I was young, have stronger ideological beliefs, you know, believe in changing the world and making it a better place. Doing covering a lot of this stuff has made me a lot more cynical. Um, it's made me, you know, it's weird with the crime issue, and it's interesting talking to you about this. And 
being on the other side of, of suffering of obviously a very strict regime in the United States. Um, but did you, did you spend any time in Mexico? Did you go down to Mexico at all or you move around Mexico? Yeah, I had operations in Mexico. So yeah. I had the uh, like beachfront condo in, in uh, Puerto Penasco, Rocky Point. It was in the 90s, yeah? This was um, 97, 8, 9, right. 10. Yeah, around there, yeah. So one thing with me, like, I mean, now, like, covering a lot of this violence in Mexico and Latin America and seeing a lot of regular people suffer really badly. You know, seeing people, you know, mothers whose kids have been dragged away in front of them, you know, people just being brutalized. It makes me think as well, I mean, how do you, how do you solve that? And like here in the UK, however, growing up and I, you know, it was easy to criticize, I always criticize the police. But then you think, oh, well, here in England, you've got, there's so much safety in comparison. Here you can walk down a street and you know, people aren't worried about their kids being kidnapped violently. Uh, uh, in the US, I guess, I mean, the US has got a very brutal, you know, quite a hard system and still a lot of violence in some places, but a lot of security in other places. So it's kind of a mix as well there. Well, you've brought me to what I was going to uh, conclude with. Um, I, I watched your podcast with Joe Rogan mm. where you, where he's like, you know, how, how do we end this? You know, mm. just, the cartels just get bigger and crazier and yeah. more violence and it just moves from one country to the other. And I watched your answer to him and his questions. So from researching Escobar, yeah, he was sourcing a kilo of coca paste for $60. Mm. This was in the 70s. Cocaine's gone for yeah. 60000 a kilo in America. Weed was called weed because it grew at the sides of roads. It was a mm. worthless plant. Opium's a plant. Cocaine's a plant. Mm. They're worthless plants at the end of the day. Mm. But when politicians made drugs illegal, these plants became more valuable than gold. Mm. So it doesn't matter who they arrest. The root cause is never addressed. Mm. If plants are worth more than gold, and the only people who can sustain the mass production of them is the mafia, it's the biggest incentive in the world for the mafia to, 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 to keep flooding the entire world with drugs. And it, it just gets bigger every year, the illegal black mm. market, because of drug laws. Yeah. That's what. Sure. So, so I agree with you totally. However, so what's, how do we actually move forward? So like, I believe in drug policy reform. You know, we have to reform drug policy. The idea of prohibition doesn't work. We have to look at damage limitation. I mean, if you look as well, going back, people had this belief. I mean, going back to Richard Nixon, when he was kind of launching the war on drugs, and he had this kind of belief. He said, we can abolish heroin from Americans' lives. We can abolish this. You know, it won't exist. There won't be any heroin around. And there was even a United Nations conference in the 90s with a slogan, a drug-free world, we can do it. I actually believed there could be a drug-free world. You know, like, imagine that, you know, when we're, you know, we're here now, you go out, you know, you go out and, you know, in, in any city in the UK, how, much, you know, how many drugs can you find in any city in America, anywhere in the world? I mean, imagine they actually believe we could do this. It's got to be damage limitation. But what does it really mean? So like, okay, marijuana, we can legalize. Cannabis, we can legalize. It's already become legal and it's kind of people are catching up. Move faster with that to legalize the whole thing. 
you know, and with you know with health stuff. I mean, obviously for for a lot of you know there is there's an issue with the um, schizophrenia and stuff, and something that you know that I've seen. Uh, you know, you have to you know I mean, maybe maybe legalize it might be easier to try and have lower doses and people to be more aware of not having super strong stuff when they're teenagers or whatever, and they, if they do suffer from any any mental health issues. But legalize cannabis. But then we get to the issues, okay, of cocaine, heroin, crystal meth, uh, ecstasy. Okay, I mean, so like, exactly how are we going to treat these drugs? Now, we could say legalize everything. Or we could say, okay, first of all, we could say, okay, decriminalize it, that we're not going to send you to prison for simply possessing the stuff. But you still have the trade being illegal and then being controlled by criminals, being controlled by organized crime. So if, so if we get to heroin, we're ever going to be able to really legalize, or we're going to try to legalize heroin. Imagine you legalize heroin, somebody dies of a heroin overdose. They're going to go and sue that whoever sold it to them right away. It's quite hard to, to legalize. So do, do we need some kind of, and that's one of the difficulties now of how you deal with some of those harder drugs. The issue of cocaine, I mean, can you legalize cocaine? Can we allow shops to sell cocaine? I don't know. What, what do you think? Do you think? Oddly enough, out mm. of all of the towns and cities in this country, my town, Widnes, mm. there was a program set up by a doctor mm. because heroin use was off the scale. Yeah. Shoplifting was off the scale. Burglaries. All of, out of all of the drug users, heroin users commit a disproportionate amount of acquisitive crime. Yeah. So to try and address that, this doctor said, all right, and, and, and the spread of AIDS as well from sharing yeah. needles. He said, we're just going to give them medicinal grade heroin for free. Yeah. Which doesn't cost much. Like I said, it's yeah. a worthless plant if you're just sourcing the pure stuff. Yeah. It's not black market sourced. Save the taxpayers a lot of money if these people aren't creating all the crime and going to prison and all those costs and the health costs of, of the diseases. And what happened was in Widnes, um, the addicts were no longer afraid of getting arrested. Yeah. They were going in and getting this medicinal grade heroin so the diseases weren't getting transmitted. Mm. They were talking to the health teams because mm. they weren't going to get arrested who helped counsel them to get off the drugs. They weren't shoplifting. Yeah. They weren't stealing cars and they weren't robbing people's houses. And this was so successful in my town. Mm. It started to make news headlines because the shops, the chains like... Um, I can't remember the chain, the Woolworths and W.H. Smith yeah. back then, whatever they were called. Um, they wanted it rolled out across the entire country. Mm. And it started to make news headlines. The Americans found out. DEA found out. And a call to Downing Street ensued. That program was completely closed down. Mm. But years later, Portugal had over 100,000 heroin problem users. And they adopted that program mm. and they got their heroin users halved again because they weren't afraid of getting arrested and they spoke to the health teams and all of the crime, the, the, the theft and the disease transmission collapsed as well. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one, one thing. It's interesting. I mean, so you, you totally open-minded about trying to expand those programs. One of the things, one of the questions I always have about those programs, I have to look into this. I don't know if you know the answer to this already. Because there are some programs for that as well in like, um, I think Canada as well is like expanding programs for this now. And where are they making the heroin? Like, who, so the government's actually making the heroin itself? Like, the, the government's, where are they buying the opium poppies from? 
Well, we went in Afghanistan to stop the growth of the yeah, opium. Yeah, yeah, opium poppies in the it's up, fa- it's up a thousand yeah. percent. It's, it's so a, I don't think we can do it. I wonder where the, where the government's buying. It's interesting to, interesting to know whether, like, if, if, if they're, you know, when, they, when you have these, these, these programs for legal handing out, and yeah, and I, I, you know, I agree, I'm totally open minded to see this as a, as, as try these, expanding these, and see if that, you know, that, that stops money going to drug cartels. Like in the United States, there's still a lot of money being made from, in Mexico from the cartel selling heroin to the you know, United States. So if the United States started just, you know, creating heroin and giving it out to people, it'd be an interesting question where they're, where they're making the heroin from. Are they, are they like, cause you have weird things with opium that certain countries under the UN treaties, like I think Turkey's allowed to like legally produce more like opium poppers, which then go to this kind of legal market. You don't really hear much about this, do you? Like where's the, how's the legal market of, of opiates, and you have opiates used in in certain medicine. How's that working? And you know, was it why is it the these uh, peasant farmers in Mexico are not allowed to make any opium for these legal markets? Because you go and talk to these people, and they're like, "Well, I'm only doing this because there's nothing else." You know, how come they get access to these legal markets? But the other thing is, how much will the if you have programs like this expanded? And okay, can you reduce because the control? I mean, a lot of the time people overdose on heroin because the level is so inconsistent in the illegal market. And I believe that heroin, um, the level of overdose is much closer than with other drugs. So people overdose much more on heroin than, say, cocaine because you can, you know, cocaine, you can take this amount and it's like way, way, way more to overdose a lot of cocaine. Whereas heroin is this amount and this amount you know, overdose. So people, because they, they're inconsistent, you know, they suddenly they're used to taking bad heroin, so they, they think it's that amount, and suddenly they take pure, much purer heroin and they overdose. So so maybe it would resist, uh, you know, it would reduce, could reduce overdoses by having a, regu- a regulated amount. However, like if someone dies of that, someone's kid dies of heroin they got from government program, are they going to resist the pressure of a parent saying, wow, the government gave my kid heroin and my kid died of heroin? Like how much would that kick back So there? if it was legalized, in theory, kids would be educated and it would be sequestered from kids. So adults, you've got a right to do whatever to your, your own body without getting arrested. It would, it would be adults that would be still doing it. Mm. And those guys hopefully will be getting counseled by the health teams to get off it, which would be mm. the purpose of it versus them doing it through the black market. Sure, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm open, I mean, I'm open-minded, but it's, it's, a, it's a discussion we need to keep having about heroin. I mean, right now, the other thing right now in the US, which the overdoses are crazy in the United States right now. So you've got the, the you know, like in, in 2018, it was, or 2000, 17 was the highest thing. It's uh, over 70,000 overdose deaths in the United States. But actually, the highest numbers were not from, I mean, heroin was high, but the highest numbers were from the actual pharmaceutical drugs, and obviously fentanyl and these drugs. So, again, how you deal with like a lot of people who are getting through doctors' prescriptions. And through stuff in the medical system, getting you know hooked. I just talked to a, a friend yesterday over over here, a friend well actually over in Ireland, uh, a friend yesterday whose mum was an alcoholic. She then suffered from cancer. It was during cancer treatment she was take given 
opioids and then is now kind of gone into a opioid addiction, heroin addiction. And in those cases, well, so again, a lot of difficult things of how, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I'm, I'm totally uh, in, in favor of drug policy reform. All I'm saying is that it's complicated. It is not like one button and everything legalized and the whole problem goes away. There's like these complicated issues over each of these drugs and how you would, how you would, so you're talking about legalization of heroin, whereas doctors give free heroin. They don't, you know, the government makes heroin and gives it free. So it's not really legalization in the same way of legalizing cannabis. As, as a, as a, um, scheme to get people off it giving yeah. it free to the existing yeah. addicts so that's still not letting like shops sell heroin it's not allowing for example um you know the way the way that like uh B makes cigarettes and then advertises but i would be for that as well as, like a, a, as opposed to people getting it from the black market if an adult person has got to go and risk doing a, a, a shady drug transaction with someone who might rob him or yeah. stab him and getting a substance that could be toxic, I would rather that person went to a government-approved shop to get a, a fixed amount that they knew exactly what it was and the purity yeah. level, and instead of all those other risks that they would have to take. But they still like say, if, say if we allowed like heroin, like a company to like, I mean, it, you know, you, you allow a company to start making heroin, and then we get, you're going to allow them, you know, what are the rules going to be there? Of you know, can they advertise their heroin? It's a very murky world. Yeah, then, yeah, isn't yeah. It? <laughs> can, can, can they sit there like you know when you like you're going to be like picking up your mobile phone and you're trying to get a flashing out by? That's, that's the problem. BNH heroin. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, that's the problem you touched on in America. It's capitalism run amok. Yeah, the amount of money they spend on advertising versus drug development. I mean, when I was watching the TV, you know, you're feeling depressed. Call your doctor. You know, upset about something. Call your doctor. Yeah. It's constant. They're bombarded. Americans are indoctrinated to think that a pill is a solution to all your problems. Yeah, I mean, it, now it's become a leading cause of death. Yeah, yeah. And so, so going back to all the, this is legal companies that made all this oxycodone. So this was in a legalized system, but a badly legalized system. Um, but like where where these, you know, oxycodone. And I mean, the, the thing I think in in America you've had like going back a long time, an overuse of drugs. And everyone feeling like, what drugs are you on? Like everyone, like you're depressed, take a drug. You're hyperactive. I mean, I'm, you know, if they're giving drugs to every hyperactive kid, we you know when I, when I was a kid, I definitely would have been a lot of drugs. You know, I was certainly hyperactive as a as a teenager. So there's kind of over prescription of drugs as well, um, or the, or, the, or the the pharmaceutical industry, and the way they're pushing out and making money from all of these drugs. So that's what some just say, just kind of raising the question there, like, yeah, you know, we've got to. We need drug policy reform. We've got to rethink this. Starting from the point of view that prohibition has not stopped people taking drugs and it's created this terrible black market. And you know, we've got this chance to try and re, especially the young, you know, young people coming into this. They've got this chance to how, how can they reshape the world, reshape the policies. But what is it going to be? And how would we, how should we classify rule with drugs with opiates with you know crystal meth uh you know with legal drugs with you know with, they're already legalized now with, with with the opioids you know with the um so yeah little questions up there i think that people will always harm themselves and people will always die from using drugs and mm. we can't stop it and all we can do is reduce the harm and yeah. i think that the drug laws have created more harm 
than they were intended to set mm. out to stop. Yeah. The other thing is, I, I'm a member of an organization called LEAP. Have you heard yeah. of them? Law Enforcement Against yeah. Prohibition. And, you know, they said, like, we, we joined the police to arrest pedophiles, murderers, rapists. Yeah. And I was assigned to infiltrate a student group, get them smoking weed, and arrest them all at the end of the month. This is not what I signed up for. Yeah, and if, yeah. you look at this, if you look at all the arrests under the war on drugs, almost yeah. a million arrests a year at the peak of it was weed possession. Yeah. Private prison interests, all the, the legal fees, and this, this industrial complex that's built up around yeah. that. There's this, there's this massive uh, incentive not to stop it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's turned society against a lot of the police because yeah. half of young people in this country experiment with drugs. Then they're thinking, yeah, you know, police could arrest us for this, blah, blah, blah. Hmm. And I know a lot of good police officers like Neil Woods who did join up to, uh, he wrote the book hmm. Good Cop, Bad War, that did join up to take down the bad guys. And he said he, he became so disillusioned because the amount of money that the drug traffickers were making was enough mm. to put people in the police force mm. and tell them who the undercover cops were. And also, the vast majority of his arrests were like just low-level drug users. Mm. And he felt really sad he was going undercover with these heroin users, pretending he was one of them, mm. and hearing the heartbreaking stories of how they're living on the streets and thrown away as kids and molested as kids and seeing parents died and... It, it just broke his heart to, to have to arrest all these people at the end of the day and, 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 and you know, see them all in court. How was the guy who did this to you? Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. Uh, it's amazing how the UK is so slow about marijuana legalization. And I thought you know, it might be up there, you know, further ahead on this. I mean, I guess it's basically, you know, if you're caught with, you know, weed these days. Back in the day, it was hash. In the 80s, it was hash. <laughs> Remember those, remember those days, Moroccan yeah. hash? Uh, back in the day, it was hash. But if you're caught with weed these days, you know, you, you, you're not going to get done for it. But like, I'm surprised they haven't, you know, you, there aren't like already marijuana dispensaries like in the US or like coffee shops or like, you know, why is it being so slow about moving on this? Politicians like have got to be tough on crime to get votes. That's what they believe ever since Nixon. Even though they've all done these drugs themselves. Yeah. People like Clinton, his, Roger, his brother Roger was arrested. Yeah. Dealing coke. And he said, Bill, I don't know, it's like a vacuum cleaner. Yeah. But, <laughs> and he put more nonviolent drug users in prison than anyone else before yeah. him and every other president has done. So that model has been taken all over the world by politicians. I've got to appear to be tough on crime, even though I've yeah. done these drugs myself. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm going to lose votes. But like, I mean... Going back, I could see that more. I mean, like the political thing, like in the 90s, there was still like, like in the US, I mean, the 80s, the 90s, there was still like a be tough on, on, on drugs. And there was times that people, like it was a big issue, you know, from the 70s onwards. Nowadays, I don't think people really care about this anymore. Young in people. This, in the same I've been ways. in the schools and the young people are thinking like us. Yeah. But there is a generation of people who were brought up on Nancy Reagan just say no. Yeah. I mean, that are stuck in that mentality. But one thing, like when when you know marijuana was legalized in Washington State and Colorado. It was 2012, I think, was it 2012? I think it was just after it was the same day that Obama won re-election. And and I talked to the person who ran the campaign in Washington State. And that was really, because they, they fully on legalized marijuana, fully on legalized cannabis. You know, it already had, it had this kind of build up of 
medicinal cannabis and that movement there happening. And and it, you know, full on bang happened. And I talked about how it happened. One of the interesting things, you know, and it wasn't, you know, now looking back, it's like now this is kind of dominoes are toppling. So it kind of is surprising to me that now we're in 2019, seven years after this, and, you know, then you had Uruguay, the whole country legalized, and now you've got Canada, basically, you've got the kind of dominoes are toppling. But, like, why the UK is being so slow to follow this kind of US kind of leads in some of these things, you know, both sides. But, like, when it was happening, the conservative argument, because for a long time, conservative argument had been there, and and it collapsed. And really, suddenly they were they were there. Suddenly, that they, they you know they 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 went. And, and for a long time, and I actually remember going on a Charlie Rose show uh, that year, a few months before that year, talking with a couple of people about the Mexico thing, and they brought up the drug thing. And I said, yeah, you know, yeah, let's talk about you know. Somebody said, oh, drug policy reforms a non-starter. Like legalization is a non-starter. I said, no, no. and it was, just, you know, I said, no, no, we have to talk about this stuff. We've got to talk about this issues. And a few months later, that year they legalized. So again, it was kind of a mantra repeated by a lot of journalists, I think, older journalists. Then our drug policy reforms are non-starter, legalization is a non-starter. It's not gonna, it's not gonna happen. And that that kind of has been blown out. But it's we're now in a funny place because now, like, like, I mean, I, I feel like in some ways the arguments about this have already been won, especially with marijuana. And, and in fact, most people are not. Even the people who are kind of pursuing the drug war are not really pursuing it kind of in the same way as before anymore. They're not like it's not like the kind of now that they they, they don't even use the word war on drugs most of them anymore. That that's more like we use it to criticize them for it. You don't really get people saying we need a war on drugs anymore. But the policies keep on, the prohibition keeps on. So it's like how do you actually move the ball forwards? How do you actually change things, change the reality? That's kind of where we're at now. I it's think. the people that have voted for it in America at state level that have got the ball re- really rolling all over yeah. the world presently, and that's not the U.S. federal government that's maintained weed as a Schedule One substance. Yeah, more harmful than coke and crystal meth with no yeah, medicinal yeah. value whatsoever. Yeah, and if you look at a partnership for Drug Free America, that's financed by alcohol, tobacco, and big pharma. Mm. So yeah, the politicians are in a, in a, a, a deal with these big corporations mm. um, to try and hold the flood water back. But the floodwaters getting stronger every single day because politicians can't go up against families who've got sick kids mm. who are in hundreds of seizures a month and can go into a coma and die. And all the pharmaceutical pills in the world won't stop it, but they get under oil, the cannabis oil, and it completely stops it or minimizes it and can, and can save their lives. Politicians can't go up against that. Mm. So, you know, like like um, Charlotte in America, that, that case has been used now across states when people are going in for um for, for medicinal um use hmm. um i guess i guess i guess why the uk has been slow thinking back about this and compare it to the us is the us does have this kind of the fact that states can do this and change it if in the uk counties could change the law themselves you probably have you know you know bright if, if cities if brighton could change it brighton would like legalize you know, cannabis for a start, like, you know, whatever. Or what else, Bristol, you know, I know uh, what other places might do it. But I guess because it's all like national laws here, you have to have a whole, you know, change with that whole changing kind of parliament doing it. So maybe that's why it's kind of been slow. Whereas in the US, you get these, these you know, states. And so I thought California, a lot of people thought California would be the first to go. And California was resisted and then it went. And then, you know, obviously then after 
in the same now you've got like how many states legalized we we're still one of the sad things really sad things i mean i i wrote op-eds uh supporting marijuana legalization and arguing this would reduce the violence in mexico uh, and it's sad to say now to concede that after marijuana has been legalized in the last part of the united states and the violence in mexico has not gone down in fact it's only increased and that's for a whole bunch of reasons. I don't think it's because of marijuana legalization. I just think it's a uh, they got deep problems in Mexico, and 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 the marijuana is only one part of it. Was only one part of it, and it's like say in terms of the drugs, heroin, crystal meth, cocaine, fentanyl as well in Mexico, and other issues as well. It's like why do kids, fourteen year old kids, commit murders? Uh, you know, for for you know talk to kids who in Mexico commit murders for a hundred dollars or even less. So how do you change that mentality? And uh I mean I guess there's kids of that age in England or, or pretty close to that age who commit murders for nothing, just for like uh you know, like some of the stabbings and stuff. They'll kill you in Arizona prison for a fifty dollar bag of heroin. Fifty dollar bag of heroin. Yeah. That's what they're going right. Yeah. Yeah. How many? How much did you fear for your life in there? I was very lucky because I was throwing these rave parties and I had a team of bouncers. Yeah. And over 100 people arrested with me, including some of my bouncers, including yeah. my best mate from my hometown, Witness Wild Man. He's, he's quite big on my YouTube channel now. He's like 26 down, this huge guy. Yeah. <laughs> he's like a wall walking at you. Um, I wrote the life story of a mafia multiple homicide murderer this guy called Two Tonys who was doing 141 years, left yeah. the dead bodies of rivals from Arizona to Alaska. Um, you got to click up with the right people to, yeah, to, yeah. to get through it. I'm, I'm a skinny, nerdy business graduate. Yeah. I'm not a fighter. Uh, so, yeah, it was from, you know, going in the, you know, um, seeing heads getting bashed against toilets, bodies getting thrown around, people's teeth just fly out and things like that. It does... Um, get your adrenaline going for quite a while. You can't yeah. even sleep first few nights going in. Yeah. And even today, I, you know, I prefer to sit with my back against the wall in a restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> so, you, so you graduated business and how much of that business education did you use in, in selling ecstasy? Yeah, that's what happened. Made, was making like hundreds of thousands in the stock market, only in my twenties. Yeah. Why do I want to do, be in the rat race when I can just make money from the party scene? So I applied that knowledge to setting up this criminal enterprise, um, at the peak of it, I had about 200 people working for me. I had it structured like a corporation. Everyone's got legal benefits if they get arrested. Lawyer assigned right away. Bail money assigned right away. So were you in the very early rave scene here in the UK? I was a participant when it started here. The very first parties. When do you think the very first parties, like rave parties in the UK? I were? left in 91. So I was a participant when it was just all headline news. Um, like 89 to 91 was when I was when I was what in. You, but the, the, the very first raves before that some know, before that I think it was yeah. coming over from Ibiza wasn't it in yeah, uh, yeah. 87, 88 yeah and I, was, I was just talking to someone the other day about we just like thinking about the, when the raves I used to go to raves myself like yeah. from uh, from like uh, yeah that time 91 and then through to the kind of jungle scene and that then back in those those yeah good old days <laughs> <laughs> Well, look, man, it's been um, yeah. fantastic having you in. Um, we'll put all of your social links in yeah. the description box below this video. We've got your two books, the one about the Mexican cartel, 
and then the one about the um the warlords that's going to be in the description box below this video do you have a youtube channel or anything like that you said you're thinking about a podcast yeah I'm, i've got a bunch of interviews i do and i'd like to talk to you again where i interview you yeah let's do that <laughs> uh, yeah would no you, I'll get up from, from, from my thing totally but, up for that but yeah uh, no i have a website it's just uh yoangrillo.com i-o-a-n-g-r-i-w-l-o.com okay. and uh uh, yeah, great chatting to you. Fascinating stuff. This is our first narco journalist. New venture on the channel. In the comments, please let us know what you think about this video. If you've got any questions, put them in the comments section below this video. If you'd like to see more content like this, let us know. Man, you, you fucking got the balls of a, of a water buffalo to be out there in, in the front line in Mexico. Only as a journalist. Not, job, yeah, 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 I, I, yeah. I, I, I haven't been there as uh, seeing the, the inside of the cells like yourself. Only as a journalist, so yeah.